welcome to the podcast. Tonight we're going to talk about nurturing the creative spirit. And it's come up because we have this um, reporting channel on Just Right. And, and that's one of our Discord servers, uh, of which we have two, Crossroads Just Right. And on the on the server, we have this group called the Glandadir, and um, it's our writing conclave where we gather and um, report to each other um, our work count. And I asked earlier in the week, and I haven't really gone back to see what other responses were, um, about reporting your word count and whether or not that kind of reporting environment was um, motivating because it started out motivating for me and then it became eventually it became a burden and even though I've been writing basically every day since January well since December 12th or so December whichever day we decided we were going to do that shit um, December-ish I've been writing every day. Sometimes my word count is a little less than 100 words because I'll be like fiddling with um, zero drafts or doing some editing, you know. So it all it all adds up, right? But I haven't been reporting. And I, I was like, why am I not reporting? What What is my deal? And my deal turned out to be that it was completely and utterly unmotivating. There was nothing motivating to me about reporting my word count or seeing anybody else's word count. And the thing is, is that whether you've been writing for one year or five years or how the fuck long has it been, Jillian? 35 for me. Um, well, I was 12. I'm turning 46. So that's, do the math, 34, 34 years in, uh, well, actually, I think it'd be close to 35 because the first year, so I only cut that first year that I wrote with a typewriter, not the year I wrote with the, with the notebooks the year before. So 35, let's just say 35, 35 years, one year, five years, 35 years, you, you go through cycles in your creative process where you are not productive in a way that has visible evidence let's put it that way and it's like you're not get, you're not seeing this this word count mount up you're not getting this okay i've written 40,000 words this month yeah i'm awesome i'm awesome and I, and you're not seeing that i'm not seeing that and it can be really discouraging now there have been times when i i remember and this and this also comes down to physicality. I don't have the physicality to write 10,000 words a day. I used to. I don't now. Even if I had the mental capacity to do it, and I don't think I do. Um, and I'm honestly, I'm not sure I would want to. Because the older I get, the more focused I am on creating something that I'm really proud of and that is powerful to me. And that doesn't happen when I'm writing 10,000 words a day. Honestly, it rarely happens when I'm writing 5,000 words a day. And I would rather write 
something that's beautiful that's 4,000 words than to write something that is okay that is 40,000 words. But it took me a long time to get here. Because there, yeah. there was a time when I was like, I, there was a time when I was younger, before I was even published, that I averaged a complete rough draft a month for five years. Word count ranging from 50,000 words, which was my goal at the time was Harlequin, um, to that was my, not my goal. That was the model I was building my stories on. Harlequin. Specifically Harlequin Desires. Um, and I was building my stories on that model. And that was about 45 to 50K. Right? Um, and then I had some big fantasy projects. There were 100 and 120K. I had historical projects that were 80 and 90K. And so, you know, original work. I am well over the 10 million mark. On word count. Now, some of, not, none of that shit seen a lot of day. I'm just telling you right now. Because I can look back on it. And see, yes, I was stupidly productive. And I do mean stupidly. Stupidly productive. But it wasn't good. And, I mean, I think it, there, are, there are people who... I know there are authors who put out a novel a month, like like they're pu they're putting it out a novel a month, and it's a good novel. And then there are people who put out a novel a month, and it's not necessarily a good novel. So I don't know, you know, that's there's of course there's some subjectiveness of opinion in there, but some things are not as subjective, you know, like um, you know, structural issues and dialogue mechanics, and there are some actual measures of like, okay, you need to slow down a little bit. But I, you know, I actually envy the people who can, who can crank out a full novel a month and have it be really good. Um, because for me, the finish getting to a completed, finished, good product is not just a function of how long it takes to write it. Um. So. But yeah, I, I'm 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 the same way. I mean, my most productive, I the most productive I ever was word count wise was probably in my 20s um but i would honestly if i'm gonna it'd be honest with with how with what i wrote then i would say there's a lot of stuff that was very similar um that i was writing and not and i don't i don't i'm not harsh on myself for that because sometimes you need to tell a story several times to get it out of your system um but if you're stuck on the same story for too long at some point you need to stop and analyze and go why am i stuck on this story for so long I once saw somebody write 50K in a day. He slept for three days afterwards. Um, but I saw it. I'm going to tell you something. He hated every word of it. And for a very good reason. <laughs> I mean, I adore the dude. I adore the dude. And he, he did it as a gimmick. Because he wanted to finish Nano in a single day. In a day, because that means a sustained typing speed of 35 words a minute, sustained for 24 solid hours without break. He wrote for 18. I just don't understand how he did it because it, I mean, I that's stream of, it's stream of consciousness. It has to be stream of it consciousness stream of and consciousness. nothing but stream of consciousness. Because the only way you can make your fingers move that quickly is stream of consciousness. Autonomy did a, 
um, 30,000 words in 30 hours thing. Mm-hmm. And they had a bunch of, it was a live thing, right? Like people were writing live. And this was, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago. And um, it, um, it, it, it nearly killed those people to just commit to a thousand words an hour sustained for 30 hours. Um, it's difficult. I mean, a thousand words an hour is about my writing speed just to write comfortably, but I don't want to do that for more than five or six hours a day. Was it a coherent story? Coherent? Yes. Good? No. Entertaining? Mostly because of the mistakes. <laughs> I mean, it- we were, Honestly, you know, three, three or four days later, we got together and read out parts to each other. And he was part of this. We weren't making fun of him. And uh, we would be howling because he would be like, because you know how stuff when you're writing really, really, really fast, you'll say something, you'll say some, one thing and mean another. And it, he did that repeatedly. He used the word walk instead of talk. He used... um he consistently, throughout the entire manuscript, misspelled the word said. <laughs> I don't think he had it spelled right a single time. Every time it was sad. It was, it was the biggest Freudian slip ever. Mark sad. <laughs> Sarah sad. That's not their real names. Um, and no, he's not in fandom, so none of you would know who he is. Um, he's a real life person, writing person that I know in, in meat space. Um, but, uh, I mean, even he would say that it was the biggest load of crap he did, he did, um, and did say, and, uh, but he did it as a gimmick. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about, the thing about that level of stream of consciousness writing is actually, that's a skill. That's a skill, even to, even if it's in, even if it's a hot mess on the spelling front, even if, cause it will be, it will be, even it, there's no way to write that fast and not have the spelling be atrocious because you're going to have typos and you don't have time to correct them. And stream of consciousness writing is a skill you can develop. Um, And for somebody to be able to basically sustain that level of typing and writing for 24 hours or 18 hours. And if he did it in 18 hours, he was typing probably closer to 60, 60 words a minute sustained, Mm -hmm. which is very difficult to do. Um, Well, his, he, I think uh, his average typing speed was 120, which was, you know, normal. But, but he wouldn't have been going so, that fast for 18 hours. But when you're typing, when typing usually falls off, typing speed usually falls off after about five minutes, which is why typing tests test your maximum speed. But within five minutes, most people's typing speed will fall in half um, because you just can't sustain your max pace. Your, your fingers just don't move that way. You'll get, you'd get horrible repetitive stress injuries typing 120 words a minute mm-hmm. um, for hours on hours and hours on end. But anyway, um, but it is a skill. If he actually is able to write for 18 hours stream of consciousness, that's a skill he's developed. And most people don't have that skill. They just don't. Um, because it, most people don't even have a reason to learn to develop that kind of skill. That said, um, it is a stream of consciousness writing can be a way to really break through writing blocks if you are willing to learn to develop that kind of skill. But there actually is a writing sprint called the 50 headed Hydra. And, um, it's five million years. It's hold on. It's 500 words in five minutes. It's a five minute. It's a five minute writing sprint with the goal is to type, write 500 words. And the reason why it was called the 50 headed Hydra was because in that 500 words, the only thing that was intelligible was the phrase 50 headed Hydra. 
<laughs> Which is what you're going to get when you have put that much out. But anyway, the thing about... What I would say is if someone told me, if someone put a manuscript down in front of me, and I used to read for several publishers, I don't do it anymore. It's exhausting and horrifying nearly 99% of the time when you're doing slush reading. I don't recommend it. If anybody ever offers your job like that, you tell them no. <laughs> no and hell no. Kira said, I can't take this job. You don't want it. I don't want to have anything to do with your slushy pile. Um, reading solicited manuscripts? Maybe. Unsolicited? Not, no. No. No, no. No, dog. Nah, dog, that's a no for me. Anyways, if someone put a manuscript down in front of me and said, I wrote this in five days and it's 100K or whatever, um, I would ask them three questions. Are you a plotter? Did you zero draft? And is this your rough draft? And if they said no to either one of those questions, I would hand it right back to them and I would never read it. Yeah. Well, some people think the writing process ends. I wrote this in five days. The writing, you may, you may be able to crank out a hundred K rough draft in five days. I, I couldn't anymore. You may be able to crank out a rough draft, but that's not where the writing process ends. If it is where the writing process ended, then we probably would not be great readers in this country because there'd be nothing but crap to read. Is it better or worse than reading on the pit? Worse. Worse. Because at least in the pit, sometimes they give you warnings. <laughs> I'm just saying. When you're reading a slush pile, you don't get a warning. I mean, one one moment you're reading some beautiful vampire romance, and the next thing you know, you, you've stumbled into a snuff scene. I can't take you anywhere. <laughs> but honestly, um, I... One of the problems in fandom, and I honestly consider it the underlying problem in fandom, the the reason for 95% of the abuse that writers get in fandom, and that is greed. Mm -hmm. You can put out 120,000 words of a really good novel. A really good, thoughtful, thought-provoking work. And that you spent six months on. Am I being specific? Yes, I am. And that you wrote three drafts to. Not like wrote out three drafts. But you drafted three times. And you went through beta. And you did all the things that you're supposed to do. And you post it. And you're really excited. And you're proud of it. And some asshole comes along who took three hours reading it and asks you for more. And that's all they ask you for. They ask you for more. Because they're greedy little bitches. But there's a, there's a the thing is there's a flip side to where to that. You know, most things that, you know, it's kind of a codependent relationship or... Maybe it's a parasitic relationship. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. Between uh, some writers want to hear that. They do. They want to hear, give me more, give me more, give me more. Because they consider that the great compliment. It will backfire on them eventually. But these are they're people who are cranking out stuff at an incredible rate. Um, 
usually this is usually often works in progress because I find that people, my observation is people who write completed works tend to be a little bit slower. Not that I'm saying all works in progress writers are fast. They're not. That's, it's, I'm not trying to generalize it that way. I'm just saying the people who typically have are cranking out story after story after story are often people who are either they're just not bothering to even reread what they wrote or they're just putting up a chapter on a work in progress. They are so desperate to get feedback. They're so desperate for that that they're feeding into and creating this cycle with readers mm -hmm. who just want more and more and more and more and more. Um, so there is, a, there is an author side that feeds into that whole greed system. Um, and it's ugly. It is ugly. The, you know, honestly, um, I put out two really good works for Harry Potter last year. This year. Last year, this year. Um, and I have to say that, um, in my opinion, The Absence of War is the best piece of fan fiction I've ever written for Harry Potter. I put an immense amount of effort in the zero draft, in the characterization. I mean, if you listen to my to our podcast about it, you my thought process when I was starting and you know, all that came into, I mean, I, I, I worked my ass off for that story and maybe I'm a little more bitter than I normally would be because of the, because <laughs> of the, the thing, <laughs> the thing, but the first day it was posted in full. Because I made that mistake. Um, the first day it was posted in full on the Quantum Bang, the very first email I got about the absence of war was wanting to know when I would post a new Harry Potter story. They said, I really liked absence of war. I'm looking forward to the next thing that you're going to publish. Do you have a date on when you'll be posting it? I responded with a picture of two little birds. They probably didn't get it, but it made me feel better. <laughs> Just. <sighs> I was really proud of all the world, too. I, I really enjoyed writing all the world. Um, but the Ashes of War, I feel like it's the best thing I've ever written for Harry Potter. And. And then, you know, it happened again. And then it happened again. I think there were like 10 people in that single week who asked me when I was going to post again. And specifically, four of them asked when I was going to post Harmony again. And they were really disappointed that there wasn't more Harry and Hermione in the absence of war. And I was like, there are 10. I mean, it ended on, 11th, on, on, on Harry's 11th birthday. And I don't ship 11-year-olds. No. Anyways. <clears throat> but it's not about the Harry Potter fandom. Because this exceed this this is across all fandoms. I had currently I've been, I watched The Mandalorian earlier in the year, fell in love with Baby Yoda. <sighs> that absurd little Yoda. green baby stole my heart. <laughs> My, my anyways, my favorite moments from Baby Yoda. I said there too. The the first one is probably the first. Well, this is actually my second favorite, but it's the first one you see. Is the first time he eats a frog. That was awesome. 
And when the, Mandalorian, when the Mandalorian says, spit that out, he just swallows it instead. I was like, right on. <laughs> but that's, you get that frog. But there's a scene where he and um, where the Mandalorian and Kara are talking and down in the cargo hold and, and Yoda, baby Yoda's supposed to be up in the, he's supposed to be up in the cabin, you know, sitting in his little chair that he always manages to get out of. And he's got his little head stuck down in the hatch listening to their conversation yes. <laughs> and all you see are his eyes and his big old ears sticking down through that hatch just that little visual of his little head <laughs> it's so adorable the little spy oh my goodness i'm spying on dad <laughs> <laughs> but what i would say about that is that mandalorian's a very small fandom a very new fandom and already there's this entitlement you see in the comments and maybe that's kind of transference from Star Wars. And so maybe it's not just necessarily a new fandom. It's, you know, it's a continuation of a very big fandom. Um, and uh, Star Wars is huge. But uh, it's it's always there. You know, it's it's in Stargate. It's in, it's God, is it ever in Stargate? More, 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 more. And Harry Potter is like very from in my experience, because of writing in a pairing that's actually not the most popular pairing, because there's not a lot of it, comparatively speaking, there is a lot of harmony out there, right? But it's not as popular as dreary. Ugh. I hate the mixtures. I hate them. I hate them. But you know, if you go over to it's D R A R R Y, right? Yeah, it is dreary. Okay. Draco Harry, dreary. They're messing me up over here. I know <laughs> what they just did. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, it uh, yeah, I know you do. I'm not, I'm awesome. Flick, flick my hair. If I had any to flick, I I could cut it all off. Anyways, um, when you when you're in a small when you're in a fandom that's quite large like Harry Potter, and <laughs> and you're writing a pairing that's not even in the top ten on Ao3. You're going to get a group of fans who are um, hyper-focused on their pairing. And they'll get hyper-focused on you and your work. And they'll get pissy when you write other fandoms. And they'll get pissy when you write other pairings. And they, they'll get territorial and act, like, and act like you belong to them. Um, and then when you don't do what they want, what would you call that? <laughs> A dog paw? <laughs> is, is that a dog paw? They dog paw you. Or they look for an excuse to dog pile you. Right. Because you know? they don't want to look the bad guys by dog piling you just because you didn't, you know, create to their specifications. But the minute they get an opportunity or get any kind of re reason why they, sh where their dog pile might be forgiven. And this is a little bit, I mean, this kind of behavior has been going on in fandom for a long time. Um, and the and also, and I think I mentioned, I mentioned this before in a previous podcast, and I know I've got five to edit and upload. I'm aware. <laughs> I have all the files, I promise. Um, most often, the target of a dog pile has the uh, leaves. They either, they, they pull all their work and they never come back to fandom, or they pull all their work and pick up a new pen name and pick up a new fandom and move on. Um, 
or they or they abandon their work and we never hear from them again but i had the good taste in my opinion to stick around and they don't like that because the crime doesn't go away for them right they're being reminded repeatedly Right. Well, because the next time you write a, if you, if you write a, especially if you were to write a Draco Harry story, um, or I will. I'm not sure which would be worse for them, honestly, is if you picked up a different female partner for Harry or if you wrote Slash. Um, but either way, I don't know which they would object to more. But the thing is, inevitably, somebody will point out to them if they bitch and moan about it. Oh, but you brought that shit on yourselves and they don't want to be reminded of that. Yeah, it is 100% like a serial killer who can't bury a body. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> not only that, can they not bury it? It keeps following them around. It it turned into a zombie. I actually have a fantastic idea for um, a Harry Draco story. Um, uh, a crossover with what? The Hobbit. Oh, okay. I'll start sitting there going. <laughs> <laughs> She's like. I'm about to police you. <laughs> I already because, almost broke her heart. <laughs> yeah, that too. But no, it's just sometimes I see some. some I I call it I call it the improbable Harry Potter crossovers, which I just if I can't get there, it just it's so out there for me. I'm just like, no. I'm I not, I'm, I'm not gonna touch just, with the ten foot pole. I will discuss it after the podcast. And uh, we had talked about it briefly after the podcast before, Lady Holder. I think it's because you went to bed that you missed it. Um, but you can stay up tonight, right? So, um, and we'll discuss it again after the podcast. I don't want it recorded. Um, I have tea and lemonade. I got some new lemons. New lemons. I bought some lemons from Aldi. Like, new lemons. Like, I've been reusing the old ones for months. <laughs> or, like, you had unique lemons, you know? The, the unique the, lemons. Karen Marcus's novel Lemons. It's a lemon never before seen. <laughs> reminds me whenever i see a lemon warning on on the pit i just roll my eyes so hard i can't take that citrus scale seriously i just can't <laughs> the what oh the sit oh the that that is that is a holdover from well it started i don't remember i don't remember which segment i want to say it was like anime that that is where that came from but it is yeah, the warning, it is the warning um system official warning system rating and warning system on adultfanfiction.net so I, I don't i hardly ever go over there to, to i only go there when i can't if somebody tells me this story is exceptional and the only place i can get it is over there i don't actually browse for stories because it, it is if you know if you've got the pit and the abyss adultfanfiction.net is something way worse <laughs> it's like it's a cesspool um, it's like that pit they threw boba fett into <laughs> Right, the Scarlack is that what it's called? <laughs> but the thing about the thing about adultfanfiction.net is there are some stories over there that are great, right? Because these are probably people who are posted on fanfiction.net who were told that they who's got their stories purged and told if they wanted to post them somewhere they had to do it there. The archive is a mess. Um, the Abyss is AO3 and the Pit is fanfiction.net. Um, but you know it's like. 
adultfanfiction.net i like i said i don't i don't look for stories there i don't go trolling for fic there somebody has to go the only place you can find this and it's great and you'll love it and it has to be somebody i trust too i go really adultfanfiction.net well all right um, it. <laughs> it better not be a grapefruit <laughs> what was the really bad one <laughs> grapefruit yeah, the grapefruit yeah it better not be a grapefruit <laughs> But yeah, the 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 so yeah, if we could call it the pit of Sarlacc, but you know, um, we can just call it the Grove. <laughs> they're so fond of citrus. It's the Grove. It's the Grove. <laughs> that doesn't sound awful though. That's the problem. I think cesspool fits. <laughs> but you know, there's this, there is this kind of toxic dynamic that happens um, in fandom um, with an emphasis on the reader and writer side on more. And where it backfires on writers, the writers who are just desperate to get feedback. And so they really feed into this um, and encourage this behavior with readers who are pushing for more, 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 is when they get burned out all of a sudden that attention that people pushing them for more that they were really reveling in suddenly feels oppressive and it's ruining their life. I was like, I don't, and the thing is, I gotta tell you, I don't feel too bad for them because they brought that shit on themselves. This is literally a case of, it's like, you know, people warn you don't feed into this dynamic and they do it anyway. And then they're complaining in the, the group that shall not be named about how they're being bugged for, you know, for updates on their stories and they're just so overwhelmed and and, and i and i totally get give those groups actual nicknames because uh, i have like three of them that shall not be named at this point <laughs> well the original valdi group you know it, it is the yeah. original valdi group is the original yeah um we could call that one tom riddle <laughs> except maybe not i don't know Sorry. I always think of it as the writer's group that isn't actually a writer's group. It has nothing to do with writing. It's actually right, mostly no. about it's about marketing and propaganda and you know, it's just like whatever. Posting your statistics. Posting <laughs> the your first statistics. Time I saw that. I was like, what the actual fuck? Not even a screenshot. Since there's all these screenshots people post, not of the, an actual comment that really meant something to them, which I wouldn't do that either, but it's like, okay. If that I could I could see it, but just of, of their kudos report from their email. <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> Screenshots of your kudos? Because AO3, if you've ever posted on AO3, you don't know that AO3 sends you, or you could turn this off, by the way, but AO3 sends you a nightly summary of all the kudos you've gotten on your stories. Um, and it's like, people post that, a screenshot of it. And it's like, oh, Lord. Um, and this is part of that. This is one of a couple things. It could be somebody is just new. They think this is what they're supposed to do. They're really jazzed. They got a bunch of kudos. It's naive. It's kind of, it's probably, it could be based in being new or being naive. And the other thing is it could be desperate for attention. It's, it's one of the two. It's one of the two. Um, but it is, it's important not to overlook the fact that there is a element of fandom that, Reveals and reflects narcissism. True. And encourages. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
But it all boils down to this behavior creating situations for you where it becomes difficult to write. And that's where I am. I'm in a very difficult place. Um, and it boils down to this. Last year, I made a plan for my Sentinel year. And that plan got derailed. Because right now, I should be writing a James and Lily story. But I cannot write in Harry Potter right now. It may, I, you know, honestly, I, editing Absence of War, which I am deeply proud of, was difficult. Because it's really difficult to associate, because my work in that fandom is associated with a group of people that I trusted that um, abused me in public. Well, not public. It was, well, it, 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 in public. public. It, it eventually wound up over on Reddit. That's pretty fucking public. Oh, right. Yeah, that happened too. Okay. She just had to it. Yeah, it happened on Reddit too. Um, I mean, to, be, to be fair, the abuse actually all happened on AO3 in a semi-public. Anybody can get in. So semi-public. But no, the, Facebook. Um, not Facebook. Yeah, on Facebook. Sorry, Facebook. And uh, But a, the, 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 somebody who was a upset on Kira's behalf to take it to Reddit to express their displeasure. And then people came over trying to defend themselves. So it, it did still get a little bit heated over there, but mostly the Reddit thread was mostly more positive than what was going on on Facebook. Um, and that what stood out to me and, more uh, than the person who abused me coming on over there to AO3 to, I mean, uh, not to, to Reddit to defend themselves was the person who Treated me like I was the problem and I was a manipulative bitch for explaining myself. Yeah. But whatever. <laughs> and so I had this plan. And if you and if you've known me for a while or know of me, if you've if you've listened to my podcast, if you've participated in Rough Trade or if you participated in Guantan Bang, you know I'm a planner. You know I like things to be done a certain way. Um and I zero drafted my July stories in December. I zero drafted everything. I, I zero drafted April and July. I have not zero drafted November because I'm still kind of playing with the concepts. But I was, I had art done. I, and then I had to replot and I did a re, and I did another story and I made new art. And I, I picked out a pairing that I'm really enamored with. I thought that that would be enough to kind of get me over that hump. Except it didn't. Something else did. <laughs> Something I can't share yeah. now because it's my quantum bank for next year. <laughs> but I will tell you that I've written 17K in four days. And it's gorgeous. It is beautiful. You got over that hump like a boss. <laughs> But I mean, and that's part Lady of Lady Holder, you're my beta. You're gonna fucking see it. But you have a, an assignment to do before you can <laughs> Well, let's talk about it later in private. <laughs> I had I had homework to do too. So she's not gonna tell you now. <laughs> she had to do homework. I had to do homework too. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> no, no talking, Lady Holder. Shh. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you too, As. Anyways. 
Um, I, I did my homework. <laughs> <laughs> you bragging? She's bragging. Bragging's ugly. <laughs> Sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, but I got over it. But it wasn't the way I wanted to get over it. Because now I... I don't have my Hannibal story that I wanted to write. I'll write it later. I'll write it eventually because um, I really like my zero draft. I'm really proud of it because what happens, what happens, I'll share it. What happens is, is that Jack decides that he needs Will in the field, but Will is an unbonded guide. So Will can't go into the field. He's an unbonded empath. He can't be hunting serial killers. It would destroy him. He can't be opening his mind up to that shit. Anyways. So he decides. Well, I know an unbonded sentinel. Jack would probably follow Will into the field. Because he's a really. You know. This is a twofer for me. And he introduces Will. To the only sentinel on earth. Declared that he would never bond. Hannibal came online as a young teenager, 12, 13. I, I, I think I picked 13, which is a little different than the timeline that I think for the books and the show. Um, he came online during the murder of his parents, saved his sister, um, but it was horrific. And he went feral and the results were a bloodbath and he vowed that he would never do that. He would never share that with a guide that it's, that it would be beyond the pale to share it with a guide. Um, and so he's vowed not to bond and he goes out of his way not to be around guides and guides do the same for him out of respect. He's an alpha sentinel. He doesn't want to bond. They make sure he doesn't have to. When he when he needs a conservator, he gets a pair, a sentinel and a guide. So there's never any temptation for him. Then Jack lures Hannibal into the FBI, into his office, and introduces him to Will Graham. He doesn't know any better. Jack doesn't know. This is this is pride business. This is sentinel guide business. And Jack is neither. It's none of his business. He has no clue what he's done. Um and Hannibal hasn't been this close to an unbonded guide in a confined space in a very long time. He works very hard to avoid guides. And guides do the same for him, like I said. And so the fallout is what you would expect. Right. <clears throat> and I'm sad that we that this is not... Um... Well, no, he doesn't die. No, I, I, I wouldn't have Hannibal. I wouldn't have Hannibal kill um, as a sentinel, unless in, in in his own defense or in the defense of somebody else. And Jack I also was, wouldn't write him as a cannibal either, as a sentinel. No, Jack was being manipulative, but he was not being malicious. He didn't know um, better. He had right. no clue. There's a reason um, why mundane shouldn't match make sentinels and guides. But one thing that does um, happen early on is that um, Hannibal contacts the Alpha of. Maryland and lets him know what has happened and um because he wants somebody to check on Will because Will is very upset about what's happened um and as it develops Hannibal finds out that Will has known for quite a while that he was 
that that Hannibal was his sentinel. That he knew pretty much the moment he set eyes on him on TV one day during an interview that, hey, that's my sentinel. He's he, he's known for a while. And moreover, he's had several empathic dreams where he's relived sentinels, cannibals coming online. So Hannibal's intention to not traumatize his own God, on his own God backfailed because the moment his God realized who he was, he relived it. And so then they come together and they bond. And it was going to be gorgeous and filthy. <laughs> but I couldn't write it. I, I spent two days looking at a blank page. And I was like, oh, you know, I, this is not productive. This is, um, this is not, it doesn't feel good. And one thing I would caution you about. Um, it took me a long time to learn this, is that when you're doing something, when you're planning something, when you're writing something and it doesn't feel good, you need to stop and evaluate your circumstances, your situation, your idea, your characterization, your plot. Why is it making you feel this way? Don't ignore it. Honestly, th that advice transcends writing. If you're doing something that makes you feel bad, that makes you unspeakably anxious. That makes you afraid. That makes you sleepless or gives you headaches. Listen to your body. Your body's telling you something. Now, when it comes to writing, if you're doing something, it's not working for you. Give yourself permission to set it aside. Even if you're in a challenge like Rough Trade, it's really honestly embarrassing to be running a <laughs> to be running a challenge and not participating in a challenge because I can't make myself write it. Like, what kind of fucking lack of discipline do I have right now? Zero discipline. Though I did write 17k. <laughs> I'm really proud of it too. <laughs> well, sometimes people will muscle through on and it. it the thing is, anytime when it comes to anything, right, there's two sides to it. There's the, because um, it's like, often we'll say, if you're struggling with something, you should put it down and write something else, right? Like, don't push yourself, right? Don't make yourself uncomfortable. But there's that person who never finishes anything, who uses that kind of advice as permission to never finish anything. And the real crux of the problem is, is that they never really learned how to write the end of the story. Because learning how to wrap a story up is a skill you learn like any other writing skill. So when someone's got 50 works in progress, you know, that are basically all but one or two chapters from being finished, there comes a point where if they want to grow their craft, that they need to sit down and finish something. That they are not going to grow as a writer until they learn how to finish a story. And I've read across this this syndrome with somebody, this, this phenomenon with more than one writer. Um, so there comes a point where you do have to be disciplined about something and work on your skills. And sometimes that means finishing a fucking story. On the other hand, there are people who will damage their 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 writer, their creativity. They will actually, in my opinion, harm it to stay working on something. Like they will make a vow. They are going to work on nothing else until this story is done. And yet... Two years later, they're not writing anything. <laughs> I'm going to forgive you for that pseudo RPF you just wrote, Ellie, because it was funny. 
Um, but you know, there have been times when I've made myself push through. I mean, obviously, those times involve people who who had given me money. <laughs> no, there's because, other times. I, there are other times you you've pushed through. I mean, it's not a matter. There's a difference between. I'm not really wanting to write this falling action and I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyway. So I can wrap the story up. That's pushing through. That is different than sitting down and torturing yourself with something you and don't want to write. Yeah, I've, I've done that. Um, I had a professional project that I had to do um, and I agreed and I took the money and I hated it. I hated the idea. I, I hated the story. I cried the last 20,000 words that I wrote and it's not because it was sad. <laughs> I was just so miserable writing it. And that's when I decided I made the choice to never write on spec again. I can't say it didn't damage me professionally to refuse to write on spec. But you have to make a choice that works for you. And that some is writers, a healthy choice for you. Some, some writers work better in some environments. Some writers work better with different types of goals. Not one goal type will not work for everybody but finishing a story sometimes you do kind of have to push through and get it done whether it's the editing or writing the falling action or whatever it is you just gotta you gotta work if you don't work through the stuff that makes you uncomfortable your skills don't grow you just stay in the same cycle so whatever it is that you're doing that you do over and over and over again that isn't that isn't productive is probably something that you need to work on. Um, but that is different than torturing yourself. Now I've seen people it, it every, at the end of the year, people, you know, and I'm, I'm not exempt from this. Okay. I do it too. We all come up with goals for the year. We come, um, this is what I'm going to do it for myself as a writer this year. I am going to finish five of my works in progress, or I'm going to finish this particular story, or I'm going to write three new stories or whatever. People always will give themselves goals. And I see people giving themselves goals that I think sometimes it's like, why would you hurt yourself that way? Like they've got all these unfinished stories, which I absolutely agree. If you've got a bunch of unfinished stories and that bothers you, there needs to be probably some analysis about why do I have so many unfinished stories and why does it bother me? There's two different sides of that, right? Because having a bunch of unfinished stories actually isn't a problem. I've got hundreds of unfinished stories. Right? I was like, am I, I was trying to figure out if, if, if I was feeling attacked or not. No. But no, nah, dog. The reason <laughs> why. That's no. part of my process. Right. If I get tired of something, I put it down. The thing is, I don't usually post my unfinished stuff. Except for outside of Evil Author Day, I don't, I don't post it. So most people have no insight. So usually the reason why people are feeling tortured about unfinished stories is because they've been posting them and the pressure that they're getting to finish them, it feels like an obligation. And when your writing starts to feel like an obligation, you don't want to do it. So they're in and that. Here's, a, here's another thing about that. That never-ending work in progress I'm not talking about one in particular, but there's probably at least 20 or 30 or 100 in every fandom. It's never going to be finished. Because they get the motivation to publish and write through the attention that they get. Right. And then the attention starts feeling more like a push. And then it starts feeling like harassment. And then it just sucks your will to live. I don't mean that in a literal way. But I mean, it, it sucks your will to write is what it does. And 
so why is it that you want to focus on? So when I, when I see people po- giving a goal about working on a work in progress, I want to go, why is it? Why is that the goal? Is it because you're somebody who just really likes to have everything finished? Or is it because you've been somebody who's been posting works in progress and you've got, maybe you've got one work in progress and it's the behemoth and it's never going to end and you just need to like, just let it die. Or maybe you're somebody who's got 50 works in progress and the amount of pressure is driving you crazy. There's something, there's, there's different things to look at because one is a creative thing. Like what am I need to do for my creativity? What do I need to do to grow my writing skills? And the other is actually more of a behavioral issue, right? <laughs> it is. If you're constantly posting first, you know, first five chapters and you love that attention rush and it motivates you to write five more chapters, but then it, it becomes pressure and you fizzle. That is actually not a creative problem. That is a behavior issue. it is i mean it's true that is not a function of your creativity that is a behavioral issue you need to look at and it's up to you whether you want to look at it or not but i've seen authors take the approach of my goal for the years i'm going to write nothing new i'm only going to work on finishing my works in progress and every time i see that goal come across my feet i just cringe because I will bet you money that that next year is going to be the least productive writing year that person has ever had. <laughs> but there's also this thought. <laughs> I think sometimes people who people choose to post works in progress to get that encouragement because they're incapable of finishing a story in private. That they require that validation and that constant pressure to write to finish because it's clear that some people have no problems finishing a work in progress that they're posting online there's a lot lots of them that have been finished and i think that some of them have an inability to have that kind of productivity in private yeah well it is writing um writing and finishing your story, whether it's 10,000 words or 100,000 words, it is a different process than writing, than posting it as you, as it, as it, as it falls out of your brain. Um, In some cases, it literally is falling out of their brain and I don't understand, but it's okay. It's okay. It's like your brain is a very confusing place. I can't follow this, but anyway, it is. And this is not, this is not, this is absolutely has nothing. It's the last time we talked about, posting works in progress we're posting as you go somebody got really irritated with me in private that i they felt like i was dissing on pantsers but that has nothing to do with pantsing there are pantsing pantsers who um finish their works and post them there are plotters who write a chapter or two and post them and then um plotters plotters who um post works in progress that, that, that this is not a function of um plotter versus pantser this is a function of people who use attention as motivation for the most part for the most part there are people who have a very disciplined practice around writing works in progress um they finish a chapter they polish it they put it up a few days later they 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 get the next chapter up and then the next they're they're kind of like you know and that's that's fine okay because they've grown their skill and their practice in a way that works for them but if you're struggling, right, and then you hear this struggle that people have, I just, I feel so much pressure to finish my works in progress. It's like every time I get a comment asking when I'm going to finish, I just feel so much pressure. I just feel so much pressure. That is not a function of your creativity. That is not a function of your writing itself. That is a function of the behavior you have around it, which is 
to post it the minute it falls out of you, right? It's, it's like it's is deeply unfortunate. Stop putting your baby on the corner. <laughs> it doesn't need to be earning you money right now. And some people love people. <laughs> some readers don't care about reading one or two chapters or something and never getting any more of it. Some people don't care. But some people, somebody will fall in love with that story and they will harass you about it eternally. And I'm not saying don't post a work in progress. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying if it's making you miserable, it is not your writing that is the problem. It is your posting behavior. Someone's a up thread. Ellie said, I don't understand why people don't go back and edit their prior chapters. I will tell you why, Ellie. I'm going to tell you a story. Once, once, once upon a time, I posted a story. It was a novella that was the beginning of a very large series on my site. It's called Sentinels of Atlantis. You, you, you might have read it. Maybe. Maybe. Anyways, um, and there's a line, there was there was a line in the draft that I didn't like. And it ended up in my final product. And I'm like, and I was reading it several years after I posted it. Because um, I had not read it on my site in a very long time. And for some, it was not, I had edited it on the draft that I had. That had the entire series in a big document, but I had not edited it online. And I'm like, how the hell has this been up here for five years? What the actual fuck? And so I edited it. Three months later, somebody wrote me and says, Wasn't there a line <laughs> in the gathering? Verbatim. It was the line verbatim. What what happened to it? It was one goddamn sentence. Because they thought that it was in. The gathering but then suddenly it was missing so what story is it in dudes y'all that's a scary level of attachment i mean to be fair there are times when i love a line in a story so much that's how you wind up with quotable lines from a story is you love it right but the thing is about this line in particular is it, it was awkward and i pride myself on really good dialogue and the first time i read it like afterwards in the rough draft and I was in my second draft or my first draft or whatever. I can't really remember which draft it was. I was like, oh, that's awkward as fuck. <laughs> and, I'm, and I thought I changed it. But somehow it ended up on my website. And I'm like, what? It was really fucking awkward. So I, so I fixed it. So I understand why sometimes somebody who's doing a work in progress. Um, and, that's all, and that was completed novella. I mean, I was done. I was done with that and went back to and edited. And I am of the firm belief that I can edit my own shit whenever I feel like it. And I will. But I'm saying that I understand why some people might not want to. Because they don't want to deal with the bullshit that might come with it. I, I'm now inclined to think that I don't inclined, I don't really think that that's the reason. <laughs> Uh, there's probably a very minor, a very tiny number of people who won't edit their work because they don't want to deal with people complaining about the edit. But I think that mostly it's just they're too lazy. Well, I think when it comes to like grammar or spelling or punctuation, yes. But if you're going to go back and change a major plot element that if you do, your, your readers are definitely going to notice. I would probably hesitate to replot something I'd already written. And I mean, it's a lot of work. 
And it's not just laziness because it would also be that initial work, which would be a lot. But then it would also be the work of explaining to people over and over and over again who would not read my author note. I know this in advance. They wouldn't read it. Then they would be like, you changed my story. It was my favorite. Oh my God, how am I going to live? You ruined my life. <laughs> and you think I'm joking, but I actually had someone tell me I ruined their life. <laughs> well, actually, it was me and Jilly. <laughs> we ruined their life. And I don't know why Jilly was involved. It was about rough trade. It wasn't even her decision, but somehow we, we, we ruined her life. Yeah, somehow I got lumped into that ruining. Um, but okay, see, Vicky, do you want to get put in the corner? Because <laughs> that's how you get put in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've seen that on the pit. They'll stop writing a story, edit it, and start a new story of the same content that's been edited. Bless their hearts. I mean that in the middle of the road kind of way. Not like, bless your heart, oh my god, fuck you. And not like, bless your heart, oh my god, I hope you die. But more like, bless your heart, you're so silly. Which is like in the middle. I feel like you need a cookie and a timeout. <laughs> That's that kind of... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just... I do know that there are people who... I don't understand the rewrite of the constant rewriting of your own work. I mean, it, it, it really works for some people. And, you know, that's when we kind of get into that kind of you do you boo. You know, I, I really do mean that. I know I, that kind of comes across. So people take that really negatively. Um, I learned recently somebody really takes it very negatively when I say you do you boo. But... I, <laughs> but she literally means that. You do you. I mean, because in the end, you only have to make yourself happy. When it comes to your writing. Yeah. No, what, what advice I give. Hi, your mortgage. Gives, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever advice either of us gives or Stephen King gives or whoever gives. Right? Whatever advice. Wherever you're going for advice. If you don't want to take it, don't take it. Just don't. Who cares? I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not going to police what you write. I don't, I don't even police what people write in a challenge that I run. I just, I just don't care. <laughs> Um, oh, that reminds me. I, I had a little dust up in my email this week. I mean, it's not like I wasn't upset about it or anything, but I, I, I kind of felt like an asshole afterwards. Okay, so here what happened. Here's what happened. On Monday, I got an email from someone who was posting um, a story. And they, <laughs> outla they outlined a couple of things that were very similar to a work of, of mine. And wanted me to know that they weren't copying me. And that if, that, if I stumbled across their work... Um, that uh, they just wanted me to know that I wasn't copying them. That she that she wasn't copying my ideas, except one of them was very specific specific to me in a way that nobody else in fandom has done until I did it. Um, Diverger, but um, anyways, and um, so I wrote back and said, well, you know, all those ideas are pretty common in the fandom, except for the Diverger concept, which is mine. Um, um, and I don't require that anybody give me credit. It isn't, I don't care. Um, and then I said at the very bottom, I said, but don't, but don't worry your little head about it because I don't have any intention of reading your work to begin with. And they wrote back and said, why wouldn't you read my work? I am really popular. I said, <laughs> I started laughing. <laughs> 
I was like, oh my god. And I was waiting for it. I was like, oh my god, is she going to call herself a BNF? <laughs> and I'm reading really quickly this email because I want to get to the BNF part. Unfortunately, she did not have a BNF part. I was really disappointed that there was not a BNF part. <sighs> it couldn't have been any better if she called my house and said, don't you know who I am? So I just responded with a with a LOL because I didn't know how else to respond without ending up in a big giant dog pile thread on Facebook again. And so she wrote back and she said, well, now I'm not going to use any of your ideas. I thought you just said they weren't my ideas. <laughs> so I responded back. I said, well, that's great that you're going to go out and find your own ideas, but I thought you weren't going to, that you hadn't used mine at all. I didn't get a response, but that's the this thing that I deal with. You know, I don't actually care if you give me credit. But don't email me in advance. Tell me you're not going to give me credit because they're not my ideas. And then specifically lay out an idea that is mine. I'm, I do care. And, and here's why I care. It's because <laughs> it's not because I care about the credit part. But if you would do the decent thing and act like a decent fandom citizen and say this was inspired by something that Jilly James wrote or that, you know, I borrowed this from Jilly or whatever. If you would just do that little bit, it would mean I wouldn't get 10 or 15 emails from people saying that you stole my shit without credit. Right? So, <laughs> I get those too. <laughs> that's why I care. So Because here's the thing. If she had posted that story, I probably would have gotten a couple of emails about the Diverger thing not being credited. And then I would have had to go over there and actually read her shit. <laughs> so. Right. So, you know, it's just, that's why I care. I don't care about the actual credit part of it. Although there is a chain thing, right? So let's say, let's say, Okay, I'm going to use Kira as an example because she wouldn't okay. do this to me. So I'm going to use her as, a, as the bad guy in this scenario. Kira borrows a concept from me and doesn't credit me. But then somebody borrows the concept from Kira but credits her. Rude. And now I'm getting a bazillion emails about me stealing an idea from Kira. <laughs> Without credit. How dare you? <laughs> And my annoyance level goes to the roof and I'm not getting anything done that day. So it's just, and the thing is, it's just, for me, the reason I care is 99% about the communication side of it. If you just acknowledge, there's always that person who won't read the author note, but if you just acknowledge it, you won't get harassed and I won't get bugged because <laughs> I appreciate that my fans are looking out for me. I do appreciate that. I really do appreciate that they look out for me, but it also drives me up the wall when somebody could have just said, you know, there's a story that's written in the emergence verse, and I give people permission to do this. Permissions around emergence are laid out on my site. And there are actually several people who've written their own stories in that verse. It's fine. All but one of them actually mentioned my name. This one person, they just wrote the story, posted it like it had nothing to do with me at all. <laughs> and then somebody comments in the comment section and they basically called them on it. Well, I'd already heard like from six different people about it by this point. And somebody calls them out in the comment section and said, this seems a lot like conceptually, like like literally down to every world building detail, just like Emerges by Jilly James. And they said, oh yeah, it's, it is. It's her world. She says people can use it. Okay. But it could have saved us all a little bit of grief if you just acknowledged it up top. But whatever. Here's the thing though. And it's a, you know, it, it becomes like right now, Emergence, when, when Emergence first came out, it was kind of like a, someone threw a boulder 
<laughs> in the NCIS fandom. It's very interesting, very unique. And I was like, I never read anything like this. What the fuck is this? Who is this woman? <laughs> what has she done? <laughs> right? And then the idea spreads. Well, what if it had spread further and further and further until it became a trope? Because that, because that's how tropes happen. ABO, ABO, uh, um, sentinel, sentinels and guys are known, obviously. Uh, Cabbage Patch Babies. I don't actually know who wrote the first Cabbage Patch Baby. No one can. Well, actually, Tolkien wrote the first Cabbage Patch Baby, but that's beside the point. Um, don't believe me? Figure, go read. So, um, um, Sauron. Digging up some orcs. Just saying. Not the prettiest Cabbage Patch Baby, but in fact, a Cabbage Patch Baby. <laughs> well, a Mud Patch Baby. But regardless, orcs come from the ground. So it's a very um, it's a very interesting trope to put in um, Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit because it has foundation in the world canon. But I could not tell you who wrote it first. We could probably figure out with some investigation who posted it first on AO3. That still does not define who wrote it first. Who had the idea. Ideas are contagious. So I don't expect anybody to give me credit. But don't go lying and say I didn't inspire you when I fucking obviously did. Since you're using the term that I used for the same thing that I did. It's like, okay... You're you're telling me that independently from me, even though you've read my work and can list all the themes that you've used from me that you, you didn't use that I do that you use at the same time, um, that you managed to think about on your own by yourself about the species that that manages the bank and Harry Potter could actually be dwarves, aka from Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and the Hobbit, and then you're and you're going to call them diverger, um, and you did that all on your own. Okay. Yeah, I mean, people, the thing is, people, people like, people want idea credit. They really, really do. They want to be known as the person who started something. And sometimes you can track back who started something. Um, but there comes a point when it, you you can't attribute every single thing that came out of that to the person who started it. Because once something is spread enough, the people who have seen it four or five iterations down the road may have never read the source work, the source material. They may never have read it. Right. Um, so they can't say they were inspired by something that they may not have even ever heard of. Um, but when it comes to... Um, there, there are... If somebody's inspired by a story I've written and they kind of want to do something kind of in a similar vein, the problem is, the thing is, most of the stuff I write has enough generalized tropes that you're not going to be able to pick out and say, this, you were inspired by Jilly, obviously. It's just, a, that's, but there are sometimes people use very specific world building elements. It's kind of like world building, when people take your world building and use it, and that can be more unique than the tropes you use, way more. Um, and that's where it gets into the kind of a weird space, right? Because, uh, then they're not using your idea. They're actually using your, 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 the construct that you put your story in. Uh, there's a reason why people can't just go write, um, stories set in the framework of Star Wars 
and publish them as publishable works. You can write them as fan fiction, and they're called Star Wars fan fiction. But it's because that framework is so unique that it belongs to somebody else. Like the ATF thing in Magnificent Seven? That framework yeah. belongs to someone very specific, right? Someone has specifically created that framework, but she did give she did open the universe up for anybody to use, and she just gave mm -hmm. the guidelines about what what it meant to opera function in her in her universe. Um, so, I'm certainly not the first person who ever wrote an, a dragon AU. That I, it's not even remotely possible. I entered fandom way too late, <laughs> right? But. But there are elements of emergence that are different and that are going to be recognizable if you lift my world building wholesale and use it, which I give people permission to do. But the, un the un uncredited thing is where it starts to look like to readers like plagiarism of a type. Right. And so... Um, I'll tell you another story. I wrote this thing, this big thing, called Ties That Bind. Some of you might have read it. Um, maybe I'm just, I just, I'm just being an asshole right now. I'm sorry. Um, I've, I've, I've had a lot of, of lemonade. It's, it's made me kind of salty and sour. Anyways, um, I have this thing where there are certain authors I have given space to, to write in my verse. Now, anybody can take my ideas. I don't give a shit. You, you can't control that. So why bother trying to control that? Um, but I had this person who wrote a um, a ties that bind story and sent me a link and said uh, that they wanted me to include it on my website page. And I said, no. And they got really bent with me. I said, the people who are listed on my page are people who I worked with. I was a beta on their story. I approve their storyline. I approve their characterization. I approve what they did with it. They use my characters in a way that I approved of. And they are an official part of my Ties That Bind universe. Their work is canon in my verse. Your work is not. And I'm not ever going to link it. And I'm not going to read it. <sighs> because I clicked on it. And the first tag was a rape warning. And so they responded back and told me I was a bitch and they, they that I'd made them hate their own work and they hated me and they were never reading my stuff again and they were going to delete everything and they did. <laughs> they in fact deleted their, their profile from AO3 as well. And I was like, was my validation that important to you? You weirdo? Or was it the rejection? It wasn't lack of a validation. It was the rejection. Because I wouldn't uh, even read it. Maybe. Or. Or. The judgment. No. Was it that they weren't going to get the attention they had expected. By being officially part of your universe. Oh. Well. Oh. That's so. That's so ugly. <laughs> That's so ugly. But anybody that knows me, knows my work, would have known better than to try to write a rape story and, and add it to my canon. 
Well, this is, it's the same mentality as those people that, that, uh, the one rough trade you had to bow out of because you had a. Oh, because I thought I had cancer. Yeah. Because you thought you had cancer. (laughs) And there are all those people who were butthurt because since you weren't participating, the audience was decreased and they, they, they signed up for rough trade to write with you and get your, you know, I get, get your audience, I guess. And with you not participating, they didn't find they were going to get attention. They were pissed off. It, it's that same mentality. They weren't wrong. I mean, they were wrong to be pissed off. That's ridiculous. But they weren't wrong about the fact that participate, but traffic slowed down. Yeah, when you announced that and you were no longer readers, you, you, you readers weren't, weren't participating. Yeah. So, so they, they weren't were, wrong about that part. It's just they, it's, it's ugly behavior. It was, it's, I felt they weren't wrong about what wound up happening, but they were wrong to have come into rough trade with the expectation that they were going to get extra attention by virtue of who they were posting alongside. Um, that's just that crazy. dumbass BNF shit. That's a terrible, terrible phrase, as. Um, Which one? <laughs> oh, as. Speaking of as. This is really funny. Okay. So I was telling a story to my husband. I don't even remember the content. It was earlier in the day. It was something you had, something funny you had said in bitches. And I was telling him this. I said, and as said, and I said it, whatever it was, whatever it was. He looks at me like I am the biggest jerk he's ever seen. He's like, why are you calling your friend an ass? I said, I'm not calling her ass. Her name is Az. A-Z. And he's like, you called your friend an ass. I said, I can't call the church lady an ass. <laughs> Anyways. My husband that's defended a, your dimpled be, ass. That's going to be stuck in my head now. That every time we call her ass, I'm going to go, somebody's <laughs> thinking we're calling her ass. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, there is this when it comes to we can get into terrible grooves that we that they're kind of self-imposed. We do it to ourselves, right? We do it to ourselves. Uh, as we give ourselves goals or objectives or something that actually is counterproductive. Um, it is one thing to take a look at your work and go, you know, I need to work on these elements. I want to work on improving how I handle action scenes. I want to be better at dialogue or whatever it is that you want to do. Um, set goals for yourself in that way. And, and sometimes the goals you set for yourself work for you for a while, but then they stop working for you. So circling back to where this started, when we set the goals back at the end of December during our trial period for this thing, I thought daily practice and word count was what I needed to focus on, you know, because I can, I can phone in a couple hundred words a day. That's not. But I wanted to set a practice. It was about sitting down and actually writing every day, which is why I said, I think my goals, I think I set at a thousand. But I'll be honest here. And if, if, this, if this discussion about, you know, world events stresses you out, you might want to, you might want to mute yourself for a little bit. Um, the world changed. The world changed in the middle of, of me okay um the world changed in the middle of me working on a thousand words a day and it changed in a way that threw me off my stride creatively 
And this, this happens. This is not new to me that this kind of thing happens to me, that something major happens, whether it's something in my personal life or it's something, um, in, um, the world that's traumatic or loss of a loved one, something throws you off, throws you out and create creativity is so deeply intimate, um, and emotional that, if you are not in a good place, it can be difficult to be creative or you, your creativity can go down a dark path, but maybe you don't actually want. I had this, you know, this blip for a while. My writing got really, really dark. And yes, in a way, it was a way for me to handle some of the stuff that was going on, but it turned into actually me just kind of getting stuck in the stuff that was going on rather than getting past it. So sometimes you have to look at what's working for you or not working for you and say, and reassess because what worked for you, what worked for me 35 years ago, doesn't necessarily work anymore. It certainly doesn't, not necessarily. It doesn't. I'm not the same writer I was when I was 12 and I would absolutely hope that I wouldn't be. And I'm not the same writer. I was honestly at the beginning of this year because things are different. There are days when I want nothing more than to take my laptop to the coffee shop and write there. And I can't. That's just not an option. The world has changed. There are days when I don't want to be sitting looking at the same walls I've been looking at since March. And it is affecting my creativity. And so I'll ask myself, when Kira asks the question, is, is a word count goal helpful for you still? And for me, with that switch, something happened between where we were in December and where we are now where a word count goal isn't working for me. And it's kind of put me in a rut where I just feel like I'm failing at this goal I set for myself, even though I actually have managed to hold on to being somewhat engaged with writing, if not actively writing, either plotting or something almost every day. Um, even when I was in bed for like six weeks, I still, worked on writing um i plotted i filled up several notebooks with notes about some some actually some of the ideas were really wackadoodle but i kept i kept i kept kept doing it but the thing is is i'm not the same as i was six months ago when i decided to focus on word count for this year and karen i talked about this the other day and i was like i feel like i need to focus on something else i need to figure out what my focus is for the rest of the year And that's going to be a little bit of introspection. There's got to be, you know, doing some writing experiments to figure out what's going on with me. Um, I don't find figuring out what's going on on the creative side of myself. It's not like I can just look at it and go, oh, well, it's not, it's not that transparent. It takes me time to figure it out. There have been times when things have gone badly in the world where I've actually shut down creatively for years. Um, and so now it's like, what do I work on? How do I get move forward in a way that works for the me of today and will let me, and it's going to keep evolving because the world is in flux. You know, it's not like, it's not like the situation is resolved. And when you're in a long term, when you're in a long haul on something that is putting change in your way, forcing change on you, you can't just make one change or one pivot and think that that's going to solve the problem. It's going to have to be an ongoing reevaluation of what do I do to protect and nurture the writer 
or the, and this applies to not just being a writer. This could be you're an artist, like you paint or you draw or you sculpt. Maybe you're craft a crafter in some other way. Maybe you do pottery. That comes from a creative place. And these kinds of events in the world can put stumbling blocks in your way. And what is it that you need to do to, to keep moving forward, to keep nurturing that side of yourself? And it could be the goals you set for yourself before this all began or the approach you had six months ago doesn't work now. And that's okay. It's not working for me. I, my approach six months ago to writing isn't working for me now. Um, I've, I've noticed... Um... I think between the two of us, we probably have the most like long scale writing experience of the people who are currently in the chat room. Anyway, um, I noticed that over the years um, that my process has moved and evolved and changed. And whenever I was resistant to that change, I suffered for it. Mm -hmm. Uh <clears throat> I used to be that person who would embrace somebody else's process and like dig into it and figure out how it worked and make it work for myself. Um, and then eventually I just started pulling in different parts of different processes to work with me to um, Margaret's a baby. It's okay. We understand. I have manuscripts that are older than she is. I get it. And while you're making fun of Margaret's age dark, you are also calling me an old lady. <laughs> Just to put that out there for you. <laughs> I don't think she has a problem with that, though. Shaw, <laughs> Margaret, you're gonna get to get your first Margaret, legal drink in nine days. Margaret, that actually didn't help. That didn't help. That didn't help at all. <laughs> but yeah, I do have manuscripts older than Margaret. <laughs> More than one. <laughs> See, I told you she didn't care if she was calling you old. I am wearing my trifocals and fuck you. I got my new glasses in. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> what I was going to say is, is that I, your process evolves. It's going to continue to evolve. It's going to keep evolving, whether you've been writing for, um, like I said, a year or five years or 35 years for fuck's sake. Um, and it's not... I think that it's important to be comfortable in your own skin. To be comfortable in the writing that you do. Um, to be proactive about your creative, protecting your creative space. To be proactive about protecting your headspace and your emotional well-being because and your physical well-being uh when you eat right and you drink plenty of water it helps <laughs> i'm not kidding drink plenty of water it fucking helps <laughs> because dehydration can fuck you up your blood pressure gets low you get it's, it's hard to concentrate um yeah eat something because sometimes you'll be sitting there writing for three four hours and you won't even realize that you haven't gotten up to pee or to get a drink and your mouth is like sand sandpaper and you're like how did i get here oh that's how i got here maybe i should read my story oh, no get bitch get up and get some water 
I've been there. Get some water. <laughs> Your feet are asleep. But there is self care is a very important part of being a writer and physical care, emotional, mental. You got to keep your head in the right space if you're going to write the way you want to write to be the writer you want to be. Um, you got to take care of yourself emotionally, and sometimes that that self care is looking at your process and going, "This is why this doesn't work for me anymore," and and letting and being okay with that. The, the writers I worry about the one the most are the ones I see being the most rigid with themselves. Um, I have, I can't work on anything else until I finish this thing that I've been working on for five years because I just, I have to finish it. I just have to finish it. But yeah, but you, but, but yeah, but yeah, exactly. But why? Um, but it's like, but why do you have to finish it? Why are, I mean, the thing is you're not writing. And I've, I've seen writers stall out on that promise that they're not going to write on anything else. They get this thing done. And it's like, this is something that you need to, if you're going to be a writer, you have to do it all the time. I don't like literally mean every minute. And sometimes you don't actually put words on paper every single day, but writers are always writing in their heads. They're always making up stories or thinking about the next thing. And if you let yourself stall out over a line in the sand for two years, and I do, I know a writer who stalled out literally didn't write a word for two years because of her vow that she was not going to, um, write anything until that story was finished and she's just no writing nothing how is that helpful all it's those not. creative muscles have atrophied in that it's going to be harder to write again when she finally and the thing is and here's what happens then is that the stubborn the more stubborn amongst us will then double down well i've already put two years into into trying to finish this i'm gonna i'm not giving up now what's that called uh there actually is a there's an, a, a term for it. Um, sink, sunk, lost, something sunk, fallacy. Sunk cost, sunk cost. Thank you, thank you, Shadow. Um, yeah, it's the sunk cost fallacy, which is like you've put so much yeah. money. It was in, all in there. It was just jumbled up. <laughs> it, it you've put so much effort into it already that you know it, it would be it would be like you in your mind you're losing even more to go ahead and give up when in reality you need to cut your losses and maybe and the thing is usually when somebody stalled out on something like that that for that long there's probably something that their subconscious knows is wrong that is that they don't know how to identify and it, it, it's just hurting them because the more those creative muscles atrophy the less likely they are to be able to figure out what's wrong with their story so the thing is, is, this especially right now, this is not the time to punish yourself, to be punitive in your self-care. Sometimes there is a discipline about writing. And there are times when you need to be disciplined if you want to build certain skills because you can't get them if you don't sit down and make yourself do them. But there is a difference between a writing discipline and punishing yourself with your own writing. I don't let myself I don't let myself do that anymore. There was probably a time when I was very younger, young, where I was like, okay, one project at a time. Just focus, Kara. You gotta focus one project at a time. But it was a very linear process and it was not you gotta find your joy. You gotta find that that happy place in your process where you are productive and comfortable and 
in a healthy place. And this is going to sound a little bit like hypocrisy, but I'm going to say it anyway, where you can separate the outside world from your process. And there are going to be times when that's not possible. There are going to be times when something interferes with you in such a way that it's it's like it's sitting in the middle of your process. Like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this now? What do I do with this bullshit? My car won't start. My mortgage is due. I have to finish this. I already cashed the check. What the fuck am I supposed to do with this? My boyfriend's cheating on me. What am I going to do with this body? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Look at this. Look at this mess. <laughs> but you got some assholes in fandom dogpiling you because their fic machine broke and they don't know how to deal with it. It So you, you need something in your toolbox to help you deal with that. And there's no timetable on dealing with that. You got to process what happened. Create a place in your head where you can put it, set it aside. Make a trash compactor in your mind palace if you have to. Whatever you got to do. So that you can find your joy again. And find your, your comfort zone to write. And that's the important part. Is to figure out how to nurture yourself in such a way that you can be creative. And if for you, if that is focusing on word count. You know, maybe you are somebody who likes a tangible goal and it makes you feel accomplished to achieve um, X number of words a day. And that, if that works for you, that's fine. That may work for you for your entire life. It may work for you for a year. There are times that that has worked for me. It isn't working for me now. I know that much. Because when I get focused on a word count goal, um, I can do that. But I wasn't liking sometimes what, was, what the end result was. And that then starts to feel negative. It's, it, it, it's a, it's, instead of being positive feedback, it becomes negative feedback. Like I go back and reread what I wrote and I go, I just wrote that so I'd have my thousand words today or my two thousand words today or whatever. And then that becomes like negative reinforcement. Here's this thing I don't like. That I forced myself to do. So that I could have hit my goal. So that I could. So I, so what? So I could feel like a writer? I already felt like. I felt more like a writer before I forced myself to do something unnatural. But so again. So really done is waste your time. Right. But again, that worked for me at one point. When I had. Like this is what I'm working on. This is what I'm striving towards. And the thing is. I think the word count goal works better for me a little clarity about this when i'm on a very specific project where i know i can work on like okay i can, I can do 2000 words on this today i'm going to do 2000 words on this you know and get it i'm going to like working on my quantum bang or whatever right i'm going to get 10000 words in my quantum bang in this week and that can be very productive on a specific thing that i'm inspired to work on is to give myself a goal this week to get 10000 words on my quantum bang done that's fine but just a generic word count goal that fell apart for me this year badly and like we said it became um it became negative reinforcement go back and reread what i wrote and went i don't know why i put any i don't know why i put time to that i would have rather spent you know a couple of hours you know doodling on an idea or noodling on an idea or something um 
And so that's when we, so we got to talking about like, what does that look like? What is your next evolution of a writer look like if what you're doing today isn't working for you? Um, and I, a lot of my writing is happening more right now. It's more private than it's been in a long time, which may sound weird, but I think some people will get what I mean by that. Is that most of the writing that I'm doing that I feel good about, nobody is seeing because it's a little weird for me. I feel like I'm moving into some weird spaces in a couple of places. Some of my stuff has also been a little dark. I'm like, hmm, that got really dark really quick. <laughs> I might need Hello, to think about files. I might need to think you. about that. <laughs> Um, well, your headspace is is largely influenced by your your active mind, and if you're stressed or worried, and you know, honestly, we live in an environment right now where stressed and worried is the norm. I mean, I feel like I'm getting ready for combat just to go to Costco. Well, y'all, I'm not going to be Sam's Club tomorrow, but you know, I've already prepped my Lysol wipes, right, for my well, trip I mean to Sam's Club tomorrow. Yeah, I'm not going to explain exactly what I mean by this on the stress scale, right? And the last part of this. So we've had we've had the whole thing going on this year. There's a lot of stuff going on politically in the U.S. It's very stressful. There's um, socio-politically. Um, there's the whole the, the 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 disease from hell thing that was caused all in lockdown. And actually, that that right there, it's it's the lockdown that's actually affected my writerly process more than anything else because. A lot of the kooky, my kooky inspiration sources happen in the line at the fucking grocery store, and I don't, I don't, <laughs> I'm not getting kooky inspiration in, in the line at the grocery store anymore. No. I just want to get the no. fuck out of there. Um, but the other thing is, and this is the thing I'm not going to elaborate on in terms of a stress thing. Um, aside from the whole cancer thing getting finalized back in May, some most of y'all probably know what I mean. But I live in Portland, you know. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna really elaborate on that, but because it's it would take take this podcast in a totally different way. But the stress is real, and um, very real. It's the 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 stress in the world is very real right now. And when I sit down to write, and all I can think of is I really wish I was at Starbucks right now. It, it tells me that I haven't I haven't found my feet yet in this stress and I'm trying to and the more I try to push myself towards a, a specific goal that isn't meeting the needs I have right now the more I feel like I'm failing this is gonna sound really weird but bear with me you know that scene in Fifth Element where Corbin Dallas is getting his food cooked at the window yeah I've always thought how the fuck did they get there how the fuck did they get to the place where the food truck came to your house and cooked your food outside your window? I think we know how they got there now. And it's like, oh my God. Well, because you know, my brain immediately went. I'm like, well, all we would need to do is all the Uber Eats drivers need to become cooks and we're there. <laughs> I was like, how'd they get there? I, I worried. I, I actually, since that movie came out, I had been questioning that. How the fuck did they get there? Now we the know it was truck, a plague. <laughs> now we know. Now we know how they got there. And I know it's not funny, but it's like, because that seems, that scene always seems so ridiculous to me. And yet now it, it doesn't seem so ridiculous, does it? 
No. Well, the other thing that seemed ridiculous in that general part of the movie was the, the fact that your bedding gets shrink-wrapped every night. Your bed gets shrink-wrapped when you put it away. I mean, it's, what's, it's the function, what's the function of bed shrink-wrapping? I think it was a cleaning process. It's a weird cleaning process. I think it was a, um, we're going to vacuum seal this and clean it. Sterilization. Is that the yeah. only way to clean something? Is that even an efficient way to clean something? Is vacuum sealing it? I don't know. It, it, I just, I don't. The auto wash as well. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that, the whole thing. Or was it more about the fact that he was renting that room by the day? No, he lived there. I mean, maybe, but maybe that that whole facility was basically a hotel. It certainly wasn't an apartment. Well, but I mean, there are some apartments now. At the time when Fifth Element came out, I couldn't conceive of apartments like that. But there are apartments like that now, more or less. Not literally, like with the, multi yeah. with the not with the pallet wrapped bedding. Not that. I don't mean that. But I mean, like, really, there are apartments tiny. much smaller than that in in, in New York, even today. Yeah. What I'm saying is, is that if that was like a hotel situation, the bed getting cleaned and wrapped for each new customer. Maybe he was staying yeah, in, by mean, the week. Because there are people now who live in hotels by the week. I just I just don't particularly find something that somebody has slept on being then promptly wrapped in plastic to be a sign of hygiene. Okay. But okay. So, um, so here's what it is. Here's what it is. The writer of that movie had a latex fetish and he really wanted to put Mila... What's her name? Uh, Jovovich. I can't. Jovovich. In plastic wrap that would also explain her outfit but, but she wasn't the one in plastic wrap it was the uh she wasn't the one that got she was in the wrap. bathroom in the wet t-shirt contest yeah. right she was in the wet t-shirt contest right. it was, who was it that was in the got strapped in the bed who got, who got pallet wrapped in the bed no it was that it was, was military it it was a military dude yeah that makes it even worse the whole fetish Would anybody else like to negotiate? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't recall her getting saran wrapped. She definitely got put. Her she definitely went rose up in the shower, the the auto wash thing, um, and came out sopping wet. Yeah, the the band aids. Yeah. Um. Anyways, but I, I just it just kind of struck me when you were talking about the stress of this and you know and not being able to go out and it reminded me of that scene in Fifth Element. And I just I always wondered how the hell. How the hell do you get there? And how the hell do I get somebody to deliver food to my house like that? <laughs> now I know. It's, it's just, this, is, this is absolutely ridiculous. But there was one day when I was ordering something from one of the, one of the many services that delivers food these days. And she's like, we've got food. I'm like, I know. I said, why are you ordering food? If we've got food to eat. I said, because I want an excuse to open the door. <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I need to see somebody else at a distance. I As they know, walk away from our house I in need real to hurry. Know, I need to know another human exists. It's not you. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's weird. It, sometimes it's surreal how many days I can go without seeing somebody, other, without seeing another human being. You know, it's just, it's it's strange. And it, it's it's messing with my head some days. My world has shrank to my husband and my dogs. Um, I go out every two weeks for groceries. Um, today I waved at the UPS man from the street. He was in the street 
He delivered two packages to my house. I got some um, alcohol spray from Amazon. Excellent boy. Um, and he was getting in his truck and I waved at him. And he actually like leaned out of the truck to wave back. And I was like. <laughs> people are going to have. A, so they, this, when people are out, able to be out. Like, we have some ex excessive friendliness. It's, <laughs> when people start hugging. I got to draw the line there. It's like I'm. <laughs> Just gonna put a sign on. I'm not a hugger, but I'm willing to listen to your story. <laughs> I'm not a hugger, but I'm really glad to see you. <laughs> I am fortunate that I have a partner that I live with, right? Um, but I have noticed that um we're you know, we're a affectionate couple. We've been together for holy shit. We just recently had an anniversary and I don't even remember how long we've been together. Ninety-nine? 1999? Someone does the math for me. 21 years? Wow. Wow. That's one hardy motherfucker. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it is? She's right. It is. But they should all be on the same server. They are all on the same server. I think they're all down. Yep, they're all down. That's a full-on outage we'll, right there. We'll monitor it. Not personal. I hope it don't fucking take long. But I could actually... I share the same thousand, thousand square feet with my sister. It's just the two of us, right? There's no animals. We actually, because of the layout of the place, can go days without seeing one another. Wow. That's and weird. It is weird. But we actually, because our... We got kind of like kind of an L shaped, and our bedrooms and her office, her bedroom and office together, and we're on opposite side ends of the L. So mm -hmm. the, only, the only place we really have in common really is the is the kitchen. And at times, because one of us has been sick, we've isolated from each other. So it's weird to be in that smallest space and not see somebody for days. Hear them coughing, but other than that. But yeah, it is. It is. I don't want to dwell too much on the whole situation. It's just trust people out to talk about or hear about the reality we live in. But when it comes to your your you as a writer, you cannot actually ignore how outside stress affects you as a writer. And if there's some if you and if you are and you're having a problem with your writing, there might be some causation. Could be correlation, but I'm inclined to think that there's some causation there. Um, it's worth thinking about. Is the outside world stress affecting the way you write? Do you need to make some adaptations to get through this? And maybe you'll discover something new about yourself or you'll bring in some new aspect to your writing. Because I think, you know, we we grow during times like this. And if you keep writing, you're going to change. You're going to grow in some way. Your process will change. Your, the tone of your stories may change. Your, your voice as a writer um, will mature. The longer you write. I see a difference in my own writing that even from five years ago. I hope there's never a day where I don't see a change in myself like that. And I don't necessarily mean like a technique or um, figuring out I've been using the wrong spelling of ordinance for two decades. Um, 
or that whole pus thing, which you know honestly still still bothers me. It's someone asked me recently if if I was over the whole pus thing. I am not, in fact, over the whole pus thing. Anyways, are you spelling pus wrong too? Yeah, you called me out on it in the middle of the podcast. Oh well, <laughs> that's the kind of thing I do, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but I thank you for it because I, I had no idea. Anyways, um. I don't mean those kinds of things because that, that that comes and goes. And I have fibromyalgia and I have brain fog. And sometimes I'll say one word and mean another. Um, I thought puss and pus was spelled with two S's. This could come from the fact that I did teach myself to, to read. Um, and that's what happens. Those kinds of things happens. And I don't have, I've never had an actual occasion to use the word pus. It's a word I actually avoid because it's disgusting. So. I've never had anybody correct me in its use in a in a manuscript before. Because I have never used the word pus. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I understand what the word P-U-S-S means. But I thought it was spelled the same way. You know, like there, not like, but there, but there are sometimes there'll be words that are like read and read. Spelled the same. Lead, you know. Yes. Well. the same. <laughs> The your your the lead lead thing is a is a is a different kettle of fish. I get it, I do, but at least you're, you're aware of that one. You're aware you struggle with that one. So yeah, I do struggle with lead and lead and lead because like I would often use the word lead for I was use I would use the L E A D spelling for he led somebody out of the room when it should be L E D. Because you know the past tense of lead is L E D, but right. lead the met the the substance is pronounced lead L E A D, and so I I get the disconnect people have there. Um, yeah, I am content with this content, so I could see how these kinds of things could happen. You know. Um. English is terrible. It should go stand in the corner and think about its actions. The word duos and trios, like palette, palette, and palette, um, those are all spelled differently, but pronounced exactly the same. Um, it's terrible. And ordinance and ordinance are, there actually is a slight pronunciation difference, but they are spelled very similarly. Very like there's one letter difference? It's an I. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's um, which which is not the easiest thing to see. I don't find pe- people. I don't see people often getting R E I N mixed up with other things, but R E I N and R E I G N. Yeah, people, I see people, that a lot. People are putting with that. They're putting that G in when they're raining things in all the time, and it's like R E I N, R E I N. Weary and weary. I used to confuse leery and weary, not in like spelling, obviously, but in definition. Which because Larry and Wary are actually similar. They're, they'd be synonyms right. to one another. But Larry Leary and Wary Leary and Weary are not synonyms. No, no. But I used to confuse them when I was younger. But that's not what I mean. I don't mean about, you know, these these kinds of little things that you do. Um recently someone pointed out to me that um and this was actually it turned out to be an autocorrect thing. And I don't know how this got in my autocorrect. It must have been like with a spelling issue I'd had because it was probably a spelling issue. But I had in several places used the word regulate when I meant relegate. 
And I was like, how is this happening? Because I do know the difference between those two words, right? Why would I be using this? And I, I, I did do it. In, in a, I was like, why did I do this? And so I went and looked at my autocorrect and I had autocorrect the spelling of relegate. I had misspelled relegate somewhere along the lines and I had autocorrected it to regulate. So your, so, type, every, so your typo for relegate becomes regulate. Right. So I pulled it out, obviously, but uh, and so, but yeah, that, but that isn't the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about your voice as a writer, um, your tone, your, your um, autocorrect is sometimes the devil, but it is also very, very fucking handy if you're writing The Hobbit. Ugh. Yes. All those diacritical marks are a freaking nightmare if you don't have autocorrect. Right? <laughs> I actually paused in the middle of a challenge once to go on Facebook just to say, fuck you, Tolkien, all your diacritical marks. And that's when I told her about autocorrect. <laughs> I had never thought to use for that, but, you know, I was like, yeah, I should, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, not in Word. In Word, autocorrect is only what you put in yourself. And, like, common things, like if you spell the T-E-H, it'll correct it to T-H-E. But And those are, like, the common words that they put in. But if your autocorrect is correcting Dorothea to diarrhea, that's on you. <laughs> you did that. <laughs> now, autocorrect, autocorrect on your phone is some bullshit. <laughs> yeah, but, that's different. That's different. But yeah, in Word, it's something you're doing to yourself most of the time. And I did do that to myself. That was in my autocorrect dictionary. Um, text messages are the worst. <laughs> but what I have noticed about myself and, and, and this is because I don't throw away my own writing um, and I still have the first manuscript that I ever wrote I mean the ones I wrote in the notebook not the ones I typed um, but the actual ones I the, the first one I ever finished was a type and that's you know also saved and what I've noticed about myself as a writer um, and I can track my voice um as I grew into the writer that I am today, which is, you know, honestly, a practically a fucking spiritual experience <laughs> to, to see yourself that way, to see that growth. It's, it's amazing. It's awesome. Um, and I would say that when I was younger, that my writing had a very sharp edge, especially in my twenties, my early thirties. Um, I've always had a really tight narrative. When I was very young, my narrative was too tight. Um, to the point of being minimalist. <laughs> and there is such a thing. It's too tight. Yeah. It, I, I, honestly, reading my younger work, like, like when I was in my teens, um, even overlooking the grammar issues uh, that I had and some structural issues and lordy my plotting, but Regardless of that, my actual narrative was so tight that it was that it's exhausting to read. I was the opposite. I was much wordier when I was younger, much. Which I know people are probably going, "Really? Yeah." Um, there wasn't a 60, <laughs> there wasn't a sixty thousand word story I wasn't willing to put in a hundred twenty thousand word wrapper. <laughs> um, <laughs> How long was Emergence again? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that's like three separate books, but it's like two hundred twenty-five thousand. Yeah. yeah, it is three separate books, but 
I mean, I'm still, but, I'm still a little. It's actually, I don't know. I've looked at some of my writing recently. I still have this perception of myself as wordy, but I've looked back at some of my writing over the last. I can kind of see where some of the wordiness trend changed over the last decade. The issue, a lot of times, is just that I have too much plot for the word count limits I've set for myself. So it's not so much that I'm wordy; it's just I plotted bigger than the word count constraints. She overplotted herself. <laughs> It's not so much overplotting. It's just that I deluded myself for some reason into thinking that I could tell a 40,000 word story in 25,000 words. And that is not my skill. No. Um, ever. So. I'm, I'm actually pretty good at figuring my. I mean. It's a little iffy sometimes on word on, um, on, on Harry Potter. Because it's a big fandom. And it's a big canon. And court scenes. Mm. Yes. Court scenes, y'all. <laughs> they do get out of hand. They do. Because <laughs> you need so much fucking justice. I didn't start that. Court scenes are a fundamental a fundamental thing in Harry Potter. Because of all the injustice that is done to Harry Potter and other characters. It's a trope. No, but honestly, in some there are I mean, it's some fandoms that also tend to gravitate towards court scenes. I mean, there are... Um, I read some Law and Order fanfic back in the day, and a lot of it tended to gravitate more towards what was going on in the courtroom than what was going on in the investigation, which is interesting because the show was really evenly divided between um, the two. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that gets out of hand quick. You think, I mean, I just, I don't think I would set to tell something, set out to tell something that was going to have any kind of court scene on like a 10,000 word constraint. Because you give me a court scene, it's going to be 10,000 words by itself. If right, I'm plotting, just if the court I'm, scene itself. If I'm putting a, t a court scene into a story, it's going to be 10,000 words, probably. I need explicit justice. <laughs> yes. We're getting all this out. But, like I said, when I was young, my, my narrative was exhausting. Because I was a minimalist. But I would cram all of the information. Like, take for instance, just imagine... The absence of war, but I wrote it in 60k. You have to do a lot more telling if you're going to get all those plot points across. It well, number one, I probably would have, I probably wouldn't have had a lot of that nuance in my plot because at 12, I would not have known how to do that kind of nuance. But the, the point I'm making is, is that it would be. So my my work was so condensed. My narrative was so condensed, um, and that I could throw half my plot at you in the first chapter. And, and I was like, "What? What were you doing, child? What were you doing?" <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if it's because I cut my teeth on Gina Yule and Harlequin. It could have been in a reactionary thing. Yeah. At the same time. You could have swung that pendulum far the other way. <laughs> I could have. And then as I got older, my narrative loosened up. And um, But what I would also say is that my work was very clinical. Um, I had figured out the formula. And I followed that formula. <laughs> I got in that box <laughs> and wrote my story. I did it over and over and over and over again. And so what I've noticed in the past decade is that 
my work has moved um, away from that kind of formula, which is good, um, at least for me personally. I don't want to embrace that kind of formula. But moreover, I have, I have, my focus has shifted as a writer from uh, physical intimacy to emotional intimacy. Because that's definitely my jam these days. Which is probably why I almost made Jilly cry a couple of times. <laughs> Terrible person. <laughs> but you, but you, the thing, the point is that you change. You change over time. If you, if you let yourself, you have to let yourself. This is, this is really key. Change, change and growth as a writer is not something that just happens. Because we, we all know that writer who has been writing the same story for 30 years. I don't mean one story. I mean, writing the same story over and over and over again. And in a way, if like, if you're a romance writer, someone could, you know, could come back and come say, well, if you're a romance writer, you've been writing the same story for 30 years. Not really. That's not what I mean. I mean, like literally the same basic plot elements over and over and over again. Um, and sometimes you do that because you need to work something out, but sometimes you're just stuck in recycling the same thing rut or there are some people in, in the original fiction world who do it for a paycheck right they're regurgitating the same stuff from the same you know they have paragraph libraries it, it, it's like build a bear but for stories right and they're basically telling the same thematic elements constantly just you know yesterday it was a firefighter today it's a cowboy next week it'll be you know somebody in the military the week after that it's going to be um I don't know, president of the United States. I don't know, something like that. But it's like, they just change out what the character does, right? They change out the job type. Basically, the story structure is the same. That's not growing. I mean, if that's what you're doing to make money, okay, that's that's work. That's not writing. Um, but generally, if you're writing and you're letting yourself, giving yourself permission to, to grow, you're going to change. You're going to see an evolution in your craft. And I honestly, I learn a lot by the things I wind up disliking the most. Like sometimes I sit down and I read, so I go read back over something I wrote and I go, Oh my God, that is awful. And I, I don't, I don't shy away from it. Like I'm going to put that down and never look at it again. Although sometimes I do put it in a file called this is complete shit. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but I really do stop and look at it and go, what was it about this? that led me down this path. Why did I go here? What was I doing? Um, because I want to understand why I wrote something that bad. Because <laughs> generally, I like my own writing. Generally, I do. So when I write something I find absolutely horrifying, it could just be that I was drunk. I mean, there is that possibility <laughs> or drugged out in my mind. Because usually what happens is this, this kind of thing happens when... I, I finish, I go, oh my God, I love that. I finish my day of writing and I go, I love that. That was so good. And then I read it the next day and I go, oh my God, what was wrong with me yesterday? Everything. That's Everything terrible. was wrong with me yesterday. But well, we you, all had that moment. I mean, I hated my April story after I finished it, but I read it recently and I don't know why I hated it. It's not terrible. It's not bad. Well, there have been, now there have been stories editing. I've read, read that I didn't like. <laughs> And then later on, I thought I was fine with it. There are some stories that I've got written that I've just objectively bad. Like that, it was poorly thought out. There was no mind, you know, no attention paid to the consequences of anything that I did. Um, it just didn't make sense. It was just like, what was I thinking? And my id got me into trouble. <laughs> I'm not sure what my id wanted to do, but it got me into trouble. 
Um, and sometimes you are under the influence of emotions. That's true. That is a different thing. Sometimes I'll write something that I think is wonderful. And when I go back and read it later, I go, oh my God, what is this overwrought madness? And that's what's wrong with it is it's like, it's like emotional vomit. And it's like, that's not the way I usually write. So it maybe it's not objectively bad, but to me, it's horrifying. Um, and that is probably under the influence of emotions. It doesn't mean it couldn't be edited to take out some of that emotional bleh. But <laughs> sometimes you just got to step away. You just got to step away. But I've never been I've never been particularly hesitant about scrutinizing my own work. I don't like other people to do it for me. I don't need other people to give me their um, considered opinion about some things. And I don't mean that in a unsolicited beta kind of thing. I mean, in a, I had somebody send me in, this was way back, tell me everything was wrong with one of my stories, everything. And the thing is, she wasn't wrong about anything that she said. And it wasn't a beta. This was definitely hardcore critique about pacing, about style, about, the thing is, but the, the thing that was interesting to me was that her assumption that I didn't already know. Because I did. I absolutely already knew. I can look at, you know, I, I talked to Kira about Journey Home one day. I said that there, there's, there's, a, there's a point of view issue that's going to make your head hurt. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, at one point, I thought, maybe I'll just count them. But then I was like, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you do stuff and it is what it is. I'm just not somebody who goes back and edits their work to death because that's not something I would do now. The re I had reasons for the number of points of view I had in that story. Today, the writer I am today would approach that problem that I came up with a bazillion points of view to solve. I would approach it differently than I did then. But I didn't write a billion points of view not aware of what I was doing. I just thought that was the solution to the problem. There was a better solution. That said, I still like the story. I'm not going to spend days, weeks, months rewriting that story and re-editing it to, to, to distill it down to probably three points of view, maybe four. I just don't see the point. It is what it is. And that story, the existing, the, the problems that exist in that story would not pre prevent me from continuing to work on the sequel. Um, that isn't the case with everything. Sometimes the problems in a story do prevent me from working on expanding it further. Um, I don't, I wouldn't, that's really the only issue I have with Journey Home is how many points of view there are. And that's not a holdup for me in terms of, Weirdly, actually, you know, the hold up on Journey Home, the sequel to Journey Home, which I did start, is rewatching season four of Stargate SG-1. I'm just, have not been motivated to do that at all. And there are probably people tell me that I don't need to, but I feel like I did. Or I still feel like I do. Kira is muted. I knew it was suspiciously silent over there. I, I was muted, yes. But there are, sometimes there are things where... I never say never. I never say I will never go back and re-edit my stories. It's just not something I'm in the habit of doing. Of and I don't mean edit. Rewriting something is not something I'm in the habit of doing. I'm not in the habit of taking something offline and reworking it. Um, but sometimes you do have to, I have to be, for me, I have to be honest with myself about do the flaws I see in an earlier work prevent me from working on it further? 
And there is one story where that is the case. And it's a story I get asked about all the time, and that's emergence, is will I continue it? I plotted probably another 300,000 words for that series. And I had to be honest with myself and realize that I cannot continue that if I don't rewrite the first story. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, rewriting 225,000 words is a huge undertaking. And I would only be doing it so that I could work on more in the universe. So there's a chance that the rewrite would burn me out on the universe entirely. And then I've defeated the purpose. But the bigger issue is that, right, the, e the bigger issue is that if I rewrote the story to take out the problems, to, to deal with the issues that I have with it the way it is, and I'm not going to, I will never tell the people what those issues are if I don't actually choose to do the rewrite, because there's no point in ruining something for somebody who likes it. But if I did that, I pulled it down and put up a new version, there would be a large number of people who wouldn't like the new version. And I recognize that. And they would prefer the original. And I don't know that I want to deal with it. And so I've had to ask myself, is this something I would want to do? And while I don't say never, because sometimes I might get really bored one day and change my mind. I might be in COVID quarantine for two years and change my mind. <sighs> it could happen. I hope it doesn't, but it could happen. Sometimes I get in an editing mood. And editing and rewriting are a little closer together than actual writing. Um, but I just had to work to, to just admit to myself that the odds of that series continuing at this point is almost zero. It's not zero because I actually had the plot of the rewrite and I have the rest of the series plotted. So the work is done except for, you know, rewriting 225,000 words and it being emotionally short, showing myself up emotionally to deal with the fallout of replacing one of the most popular stories on my site. And there, there would be fallout. Huge fallout. And I just don't know that I want to deal with it. Which is why, even though if people ask me, will you ever add to this story? I haven't made a definitive answer one way or the other. The answer is probably no. Because I just don't know. I just I can't foresee now the situation in which I would embark on that task, even though I did all the prep work for it. Um, but life is unpredictable. The circumstance could come up where I would continue. I would do that. I would go and do that work. I just I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine what that circumstance would be at this point in time. I would like. To rewrite a few things on my site. I won't. But I'd like to. And it comes down to the fact that, again, I wouldn't want to deal with the bitching either. And also, I try not to let myself do that. Because I am that, once I get on that road, I'll be on that road for a while. Yeah, exactly. And I have too many ideas I want to explore that are new ideas or continuations of ideas that are, that I don't feel like need a massive overhaul to devote months and months of my life to rewriting something that is done. So 
you know, that's the only way I could see it from an emotional perspective. The only way I think it could possibly even remotely survive the fallout of that is that I would have to have both versions up, but I just don't see why I would do that either. So it's just, it's, I recognized when I sat down and thought about it one day, I realized that I had put myself in kind of what felt like for me, a lose, lose, lose situation with that story. And that's a difficult in a way because I had plans. <laughs> I had plans. And sometimes you things don't go according to plan. I mean, you want to, as a writer, grow. And sometimes that growth requires going back and looking at your work with a critical eye and figuring out what you've done, what you could do better, what was good what was bad and it's like sometimes for me personally i can be too critical of myself and that old adage that you're your own worst critic is it's, it's true it's valid and when it comes to being creative creating that or, or allowing that kind of doubt to set up house keeping in your brain is is dangerous because it, you go from I don't have time to write to I can't write. You start pushing it aside. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then suddenly you come along to the fact that you haven't written in five years. But if you've not written in six months, if you've not written in a year, two years, three years, five years, you're still a writer. Because writers are born. Unless you're a fame whore who writes for attention. <laughs> then you're not a writer. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you're just writing for attention. We're not talking to you. <laughs> I don't care how good your ideas are. Just hush. <laughs> I really am not talking to you ever. I'm not saying. And I'm not saying if you like attention. I'm not talking about that. Because. Everybody wants people to like what they wrote. Of course you want people to like it. That's not what I'm talking about at all. If it feels good to you when people say, I really enjoyed your story, that's fine. It feels good to me too. But if that's the only reason you're writing, that's you've, you've found a way to get attention because you weren't willing to participate in the ice cream challenge on YouTube. And I'm not talking to you. We're honestly never talking to you. <laughs> ever. Ever. Um, because... You know, there are things people do to get their moment of fame and get their attention. And, and it's, you know, so people find that 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 space for them in fan fiction. And a lot of people find the writer in them in fan fiction. So it, it's all types out there. It's all types. But if you're struggling to write, if you are. Look at what your obstacles are. It, I think it's really, really important to look at what your obstacles are. Because when you say, I don't have time for that, what does that mean? Does it mean, it doesn't mean you're working 16 hours a day and coming home and taking care of the kids and you get maybe four hours of sleep? Okay, I, I hear you. You don't have time, literally. But I don't have time for that. Well, why? Why? But what, what does it mean something else? Because sometimes we say, I don't have time for that. What we mean is I'm stressed out. And I'm stressed out and I don't have time are not the same thing. It's really important. And writers, writers really can appreciate that nuance of language matters. 
So when you say to yourself, I am too tired or I am too, I don't have time. It's important to figure out what you really mean by that. Because if you really don't have time, how do you prioritize something that is meaningful to you in a really busy life? But if what you really mean is the world sucks and I just want to watch, you know, reruns of MASH until I feel better about things. That's not the same thing as I don't have time. It's perfectly valid. The thing is, here's the thing. We have this idea that some reasons are more valid than others. Whatever is between you and doing what you love and, and fulfills you, whatever it is between you is valid. Okay, all, all your feelings are valid. They're just not necessarily facts. Feelings are not facts. They're not. So look at it and say, what is it that is really between me and creativity? Do I just feel yucky and I'm afraid that what's going to come out on the page is going to make me cry? Do I not want to open myself up emotionally because I feel like I might cry and I might, might not stop? I talked about this before. That's where I was with writing. I didn't write for two years after 9-11 because I didn't want to emotion, open myself up emotionally to being vulnerable in that way when I felt so damaged. Because I didn't, I felt like that to be as emotionally vulnerable as I was used to being with my writing was not something I wanted at that time. And that was okay. That's what I had to do to get through. But eventually it was more important to me to get past that hurdle. But the longer you go without writing, the harder it is to get past those blocks. And I don't mean writer's block. I mean the blocks you've put in place between you and your creativity. Which in my case was a big old, I don't want to cry. So I went to a friend, and I've talked about this on another podcast. This is not new. But I've talked to, I went to a friend, and I told her that this was the problem I was having. And I felt like I needed to do something to jolt me out of where I was. And we did the most bizarre writing thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, three of us got together. She, she, she and another friend, we all got together. Together for the weekend, like in physically in the same space. And we wrote by luck. All the decisions that were made were made by either dice roll or draw the cards. It was a lot like a D playing D and D, I would think. Um, we each we crafted we crafted as a group three characters for this story. So we we decided on the three characters together, and then dice roll chose who wrote which character. Um. So it it was ridiculous and it was fun. And it's not something I think I could ever do again um, because it was, it was, we each sat on a rolling chair and rolled in and out in front of the keyboard. It was just so weird. Just, I've never written like that before where literally I'd write two or three lines and then move and someone else would come in and write two or three lines and then we'd move and we'd go back and forth and moving around because what we agreed to was each one of us would completely control one character. And every time we hit a decision point, We'd roll the dice or draw cards to make the choice. Um, it was just, and it did. It, it blew me right past my writing block that I had had in place for two years. Blew right past it. In a very, but I felt like I needed to do something drastic. Um, and there was, I, and the thing I'd been worried about is that there, there would be a lot of crying. That I'd open myself up and I would start to cry. And it wouldn't, what I wound up doing was laughing my ass off a lot. 
the crying did happen. It happened later. It was something that happened when I really was able to sit down in my own process, in my own headspace, and really get in touch with that creative part of myself. And there, there was, I mean, my writing made me cry. Like every time I wrote for like, a, you know, five or six months, it was terrible. And it was exactly what I was afraid of, but it was also exactly what I needed, but I needed something to get me from point A to point B. And my friends came through with this ridiculous writing experiment. I still have that story. Um, it's really weird, but, um, but it was cause it was, I did that because it was important to me to get that part of myself back. Because I missed it. I missed it like a missing limb that I wasn't writing. And I wasn't even really making stories in my head because I was shutting it all down because I just didn't want to go there. It can be difficult. It can. It can be very difficult. So wherever you are, whatever place you are in, just give yourself room to feel how you feel and to make whatever changes you need to make to keep in touch with that side of yourself, whether it's writing or art or um, craft, whatever keeps you feeling, you know, connected to the world. Cause I feel like I connect to the world through creativity and that's important to me. So give yourself space, be empathetic to yourself and give yourself permission to try new things. Even if it seems kind of wackadoodle. I told Kira, was it yesterday? I said that we've talked about tomfoolery and shenanigans. That there hasn't been any discussion of Ballyhoo. I think we definitely need some Ballyhoo. <laughs> we um, need all the Ballyhoo. And, and you may need some Ballyhoo to get your... Um, get yourself back in the groove. Hijinks. And we occasionally have some brouhaha going on. There's always room for an international brouhaha. Right? Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. But for those of you who were creep freaking out about the websites being down, they are back up. It was a blip. Um, but whatever you do to change things up, don't let it be punitive. Don't let it feel punitive. Punishing yourself with your writing is, I think, the most counterproductive thing you can possibly do. I never want to feel like my writing is a punishment. I don't want my writing time to feel like the time of day that I dread. Unless it's an action scene. And then I just deal with, you know, how I feel about that. It's like, okay, I'm going to write the action scene that I put in as a placeholder. Placeholder. Battle of the Five Armies. You know. <laughs> that is my that is my final plot point for for um small it's magic. quite it's quite a plot point but you know i've done <laughs> that, that. I've felt pointed jillian <laughs> it was pointed but i i have left place when i've sometimes i've been writing like i want to i don't want to deal with the thing i don't want to write today because i'm like i want to write i want to write on this story i don't want to write this action scene that i have plotted i don't want to write that sex scene i just don't want to and so i don't and i put a placeholder in and then later I have to go and fill those placeholders in. And sometimes that's a little bit, oh, I don't want to, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because at that point, all that stands between me and a completed draft is those placeholders. And so I I'm incentivized to go and fill in my blanks. But generally, aside from that, I try not to make sitting down at my computer to be something that I dread. I don't want to feel bad about it. I don't want to. In the middle of writing Sentinels of Atlantis, um, 
Elizabeth Weir comes online as a sentinel. I wrote the aftermath. Originally, that episode was going to be titled The Storm. Um, and I was going to switch back and forth between John and Elizabeth. John trying to save the city, fighting the Janai, and ignoring, trying to ignore the fact that Elizabeth was coming online in the gate room and she was going to come online feral because of what was being done. And I had the whole thing plotted out. And I sat down to write it. And went, nope. <laughs> it was just, no. <laughs> not today, Satan. That's not happening. <laughs> so I, I could not write Elizabeth in a feral episode. I could not do it. And this could boil back to my own trauma as a woman. I share a trauma um, that a lot of women, three out of ten, share. It shaped me as a young woman. It shaped me as a writer. Um, and there have been times when I have been writing where I had to back away from a plot point or a whole plot uh, because of the shaping that happened to me because of that event. Um, I'm not going to talk about it on the podcast because I'm not prepared to have that kind of emotional bloodletting um, for people to listen to. Um, it's just not, not going to happen. Um, but I could not write it. I could not write Elizabeth going... I could not... I had no problems writing Bates going feral. Although I didn't write it from his point of view. Maybe it's just not a mindset you want to put yourself into. No, and I don't think it's a very good mindset to even try to put myself into. Um, it's not about the violence. Um, although I don't, I'm, I don't excel at, at, at action scenes. I know this about myself. It's it's one of the things I'm working on. Um, sort of, kind of not at all. <laughs> I just skip them. That's how I'm working on it. I'm plotting around those bitches from now on. Anyways. And I think that could be my stumbling block when it comes to the Battle of the Five Armies. Not so much that I don't want to write the action or I think the action is going to suck. Because I have methods of dealing with that as a writer. You know, crutches that I use. You know, narrative crutches that would get me through that. I just don't think... I can write a full-scale battle. I It's not so much that it's not in my wheelhouse as a writer from a technique point of view. I think I would struggle with it, and it would feel like stereo instructions a little bit, but I could push through. Um, we, earlier, we talked about pushing through. But I think from an emotional standpoint... That I don't want to write that kind of large scale violence. And knowing that about myself and, and recognizing that um, is, is important. It's also important for me to recognize that that is a very pivotal moment. Not moment. It's a very pivotal 
week. I don't know how long it lasts actually in the book. I haven't read the book in a long time. It's a very pivotal day, I say, in the history of Arda and in the history of the Dwaro and in the history of the elves and for Bilbo. Um, it is a very pivotal moment for Middle Earth, the Battle of the Five Armies. And so not being able to write that or my own version of that um, doesn't serve my story. So where do I go from here? You know, what do I do? Because at one point I was like, I wonder <laughs> if I could ask Jilly to write it for me. <laughs> you can have a cameo. I have ghost written some sex scenes, but I have never ghost written a battle scene. <laughs> you have to be a ghost writer. It could be chapter 25 by Jilly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love you, Lady Holder, but you're a pantser. I couldn't ask you to write it. If I could give Jilly all my plot points and she'd follow them. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd even tell her if I thought her specification wasn't clear enough. It's just like, it's so annoying. But what I did decide to actually do, besides, you know, trying to hit Jilly up for a ghostwriting, um, was to skip it and to write the aftermath. Um, because I can't take it out. Because like I said, it's too pivotal. It is a pivotal thing. So I can't have magic make it disappear. You know? Yeah, I think the aftermath is a completely it's a completely um Tolkien didn't way. didn't Tolkien just did everything sometimes five or six times yeah and I, the way I get through writing battle battle or fight scenes and stuff I do have to really narrow my focus very sharply um, I can't, I'm not one of those writers who can have a very broad focus on a battle because that's where I just start to feel like it's, I lose the characters and I've read people who've written really good, broadly expansive battle scenes, but I actually tend to find them a little bit boring because I lose the characters in keeping track of the action. Um, <laughs> you know, I had honestly forgot that Starkindler. Starkiller says Bilbo got hit in the head with a rock at the beginning and then he woke up. It was all over and done. Well, Peter Jackson didn't skip it. Yeah, that's actually what I remember more because it was more devastating <laughs> than the book, which I have not read in two decades. Yeah, I haven't read the book in a long, long time. Maybe longer than two decades. I hate aging myself. I mean, it's been at least two decades since I've read of The Hobbit. It's been... I'm pretty sure I was a tween, actually. It's been 18 years since I read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's been a few decades since I skimmed Lord of the Rings. I would never actually claim to have read it because... Oh, no, I read it um, because... And I know it's been 18 years because my husband bought it for me as a box set. And I read it when he bought it for me. 
and it was for a particular birthday. So I know it's been 18 years since, since I read it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I read it in the sense that I followed all the plot points, but I skimmed a lot because I felt like he was just wordy as fuck. Well, now you know why. Well, because he got paid extra for that word being wordy as fuck. Yeah, he got paid by the word. <laughs> the scene with Thorin and Bilbo in the movie tore my heart out and stomped on it. I can't, dude. I just can't. There's some things I only need to say. I'm, I'm not an emotional masochist, though Akira is. If something tears me apart once, I don't need to do it again. Except for Steel Magnolias. I do that on the regular. But right? But I've only watched the end of the Battle of the Five Armies once. I own the movie. I've watched that movie twice. I've only watched the ending once. You know, once was enough. <laughs> I don't need to see that on a regular. In fact, the last time I watched it almost all the way to the end, which was the second time I ever watched it, um, I went over to AO3 and read like 25 <laughs> fix and fix. <laughs> I need to feel better about this. I just don't know how long it's going to take for that Including to happen. Including my favorite one. Which was lay down your sweet and weary head? Is is that what it's called? There is a there is a story called that. Yes, if that's your favorite one, that's it's the one. Yeah, Thor, Thorin time travel story. It is that's the one where Thorin goes back in time. Yeah, um, that one is is really charming. And what's really funny is early, I was looking for a podcast and I came across one where that fic actually got updated in the middle of a podcast, and we ended the podcast. <laughs> So we can go read it. <laughs> it's like later, dudes. Okay, we're done. <laughs> you guys have a really good night. <laughs> like I was here to talk to y'all. Oh no, I'm not here to talk to y'all. Bye. Because it, like, it was near the very end. Like I think it was like the the third or like the, almost the third or the fourth chapter to end to, to the end. It was like after he'd gone to the Shire, and so we were like really geared up. <laughs> Why were you avoiding? I mean, the thing about the most useful tag in on AO3 for the Hobbit fandom is everybody lives. Um, I need that tag. Right? It must be present. Oh, like an undue influence thing. But I, um, yeah, I had to read a whole bunch of fix it fix after I watched about all the five armies. I'm not gonna lie. Some things, yeah. Some things you you fin you finish it and you go. Oh, I got to go find me some fic right now. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes that backfires on you. Sometimes the fix it fix are no kind of fix. It's like I'm pretty right? sure. Yeah, that but that's why that's why when you're really upset, you can't read something new. You have to go right. read something you have read before. That's right. <laughs> it will sure, hurt your feelings. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure the MCU pioneered after after Civil War. I'm pretty sure they pioneered not a fix it because there was many a story I read where I got to the end. I'm like, you weren't kidding. That was not a fix it. Good God, I feel terrible. I feel worse than I did before I started this. <laughs> did you intend to make me cry? Because I cried. I'm like, yep, you're right. I want. Sometimes I want, I just want. I, I wouldn't do this, but sometimes I just want to come. Out. You're right. That's not a fix it. <laughs> You absolutely, there was no false advertising here. I think that what you just described as should have been tagged dead dove don't eat. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which I encountered that tag recently and I went, nope. Jilly told me not to. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Because especially. It was a teen wolf. It was a teen wolf. I went, nope. 
In some fandoms, they really mean it. When Hannibal says it, the Hannibal fandom in general probably is dead dove. It, to many, to many readers, the whole entire fandom is dead dove, right? Right. But when the Han- when someone in the Hannibal fandom declares, this is somebody who loves this Hannibal, right? When they declare their stuff, their story dead dove, they mean it. They mean it. Teen Wolf also takes that very seriously. <laughs> yeah, um, I saw it. I, I was I was browsing the Steric tag because um, that's the only pairing I read in um, um, uh, Teen Wolf. And um, I was like, oh, look, this is really cool. This is really cool. Oh, I'm going to read this. And then I was like, oh, this looks really interesting. And I expanded the tags because I have learned to expand the tags, even if there are three billion of them. And I went, well, this looks really interesting. We've got some time travel. That's nice. Okay. You know, Laura's going to live. I'm not sure how I feel about that. We'll see. The, the, oh. <laughs> and then down there at the very bottom was Dead Dove Don't Eat. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I don't need to read that. So um, somebody asked what Dead Dove is. Dead Dove is a reference. Actually, it came from... Um, show 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 i'll think of what the show was but um somebody opens a refrigerator and there's a bag in there that says dead dove do not eat written on it and he opens the bag and inside of the dead dove which means basically it is as bad inside this bag as it says it is so it is a way of saying to readers um look at the tags this story is as bad as it seems like it is um Thank you, Willow. Arrested Development. Willow's not just the fic ninja. She's also the TV show ninja, apparently. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it was a comedic moment, right? Because, you know, there's this bag that says, Dead Dove, do not eat. And you open the bag going, I wonder what's in here. And there's a dead dove in there. There's literally a dead dove. It, it is what it says on the tin. And in this case, it's probably something that the author finds that probably morally reprehensible or in some fashion like that, which you can, you know, you can get there. You can see how you can get there in what, the Hannibal family. What, what concerned me most about this dead dove don't eat tag was that was the only one that put me off. And I was like, hmm. That's deeply concerning. I take dead, <laughs> I take dead dove don't eat um, very seriously. Because like, what are you not tagged for? Because that, that was like their encompassing tag. That was their tag. So what have they not listed in their tags that makes them qualify for this dead dove thing? Yeah, because usually they're supposed to give you... You should be looking to the rest of the tags for what this is awful. Um, well, I agree with you. Having you tag that the tags are serious does sound kind of... I'm dubious, but the problem is, is people make a joke out of tagging, and so it is really hard to tell what some people will tag for something that isn't even in their story. It's like, I'm sorry, where was the thing? Well, nobody is required to warn on AO3. Yeah. So keep that in mind when you're reading on AO3 that um, the author can choose not to warn. Um, or they can underwarn. Um, you might see dubious consent when they really mean violent, explicit assault. Yeah, I don't want to use the word to. I don't want to upset anybody. Um, so you know, just be careful. Be, be careful when you're reading because this is also a thing that can fuck you up. <laughs> Sometimes the like reading somebody's fucked up story can fuck you up as a writer. Yes. Yeah, it's sometimes it can ruin a fandom for you. 
Like sometimes, or you, you know, you go into your own chat room on a Friday night and you're expecting to have some fun with your little minions. I'm just kidding. I'm not calling you little minions. I'm just playing that part. Um, you're, she, you're in your, little, knows, your own chat room. She knows most of you are taller than her, so she's really not calling you. Right. <laughs> I'm only five, three, and a quarter. And that's probably the height she's been hanging on to for 25 years, which means she's probably about a half inch shorter than that. <laughs> You're so mean. <laughs> Anyways, I'm in my chat room. I'm in my own business, and somebody posts a gift, and I can't write slash for a year. Yeah. Because knowing the physicality of anal sex and being exposed to the worst-case scenario of the physicality of having anal sex are two different animals. Very different. So we had talked about, like, we've actually planned several different types of bingos, but we have a bingo planned um, for tag bingo, for most entertaining tags. And I'm not looking for help on this right now. Dead Dove Do Not Eat will not be in tag bingo. No, it will not. Thigh holsters definitely will be. But the reason, Absolutely. the reason why I had this idea for tag bingo, which means you you have this, this element has to exist in your story. The one that, the, the tag that gave me this idea was antagonistic handholding. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what that means. And I don't care. It needs to be a thing. I need to write a story about antagonistic handholding because I have ideas. I have ideas. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I'm going to hold your hand whether you like it or not. Well, I don't like it. Fine. Hold my hand. <laughs> uh, here got Hootie and the Blowfish going in the back of my head. <sighs> That's some some flashes of the past. Wouldn't you don't it be need. interesting in fifth year in Harry Potter when Draco and Harry had their fist fight on the pitch, if Minerva had gotten to them before Umbridge did and punished them, made them hold by hands. sticking their hands together. <laughs> <laughs> for the amount of time of your choice <laughs> do you see what a good idea this is <laughs> the, the, the get along shirt yeah <laughs> this is a good idea but this needs to be a thing <laughs> yeah sometimes I just see a tag I go I don't understand what the, uh, where the author is going with that I don't care I love it I may actually not like the story, but I love that tag. What was that tag? Because we've, we've all seen the tag, um, No Beta, We Die Like Men. But what was that one, the variant that you posted the other day? No, no Beta, We Die Like Idiots. <laughs> no, no, No Beta, We Post Like Illiterates. <laughs> yes, that was yes, it. That, that was, was it. it. That was it. We Post Like Illiterates. It was fantastic. No Beta, We Post Like Illiterates. It was <laughs> I, I found that in the Star Wars fandom. I I ship some unfortunate things to Star Wars. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no beta, we die like bards. Well, well, that is deeply layered there. That is deeply layered. <laughs> Bite me, Margaret. Ben's just misunderstood. He was tortured in the womb by a dark asshole. That kid never got a break. 
definitely need to have um, everybody lives. Um, which actually, the funny thing is, you could apply it to a fandom that nobody died anyway, and that would be hysterical. Because <laughs> I mean, the go or you could apply it to a fandom like Teen Wolf, right? So you have like so you could be serious about it. Everybody lives, so Eric and Boyd don't die. Although the thing is, if you say everybody lives, does that mean that Gerard and Kate are alive? I mean, you got to think these things through. It, it would if you were specific about it. <laughs> it depends on how. It depends or, on how you, you know, be. if you just apply it to any fandom, you could write a fic where suddenly people can't stop dying and call it a torch word fusion. <laughs> <laughs> But it would be kind of hysterical to actually put that on a fandom where nobody died anyway, and it's like you can put your this is this is my entry for the everybody lives nobody dies and people go no didn't I don't think anybody died in this anyway I know can't you just can't you just see like thousands of people going and just kind of slowly tilting their head like a porn tilt but they're like who died so they'll be raking their head trying to figure out who died in your fandom except no one died. <laughs> it's so rude. I look forward to every bit of it. <laughs> what you what you could do is put everybody in mortal peril, <clears throat> and then you basically then telegraphed your ending that nobody's going to die. Of course, I have to think of a fandom that nobody dies in. I honestly can't think of anything I write in that nobody died. Huh. I mean, even even in MCU, Jarvis died, and eventually Tony Stark died. You know, not that we're not bitter. Um, I'm really fucking bitter. I'm very bitter. That may be that nobody... But I don't really write in Law and Order. I've read it occasionally. I don't really write in Law and Order. I don't think anybody died in Law and Order. That's true. That's not true. That 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 um, DA lawyer, Claire, she died. Did she? Mm -hmm. She got hit by a car. Oh. Drunk driver. That's why Jack sobers up. It wasn't him, but her death at the hands of a drunk driver sobered him up. And some of the cops died, yeah. No, that was the blonde on SVU that got a fake death. Um, well, we have to we have to be a little specific with that because we don't want people to be like trying to write in The Hobbit where that tag is about the Durans, really. And they're feeling like they have to keep Sauron and Saruman alive. It's like, nope. You could call it Who Wants to Live Forever. <laughs> I'm being an asshole. I'll stop. <laughs> I, miss I think it goes without saying that you could write Highlander fic for that. <laughs> I'm not sure you could. It's not the whole point. Is it almost everybody dies? <laughs> I mean, if you only there have two characters in your story, it just depends on how many characters you put in your story. When the right? whole when the whole premise is there can be only one. I don't know how it's you. It's so can rude, though. I mean, it's so rude. I mean, that would be an epic fix. It right is to throw um, everybody lives, nobody dies onto the Highlander. Unexpected and ill. I'm assuming that's ill timed. Ill timed crushes. Um, I'm trying to figure out what an ill timed crush would look like. A funeral. <laughs> You just popped right out with that. Oh my god! <laughs> how many places? How many off? How often is a crush ill time? And you know why that popped in my? I cannot count the number of romance novels I have seen read where some guy is popping a boner at a funeral, and I'm like, not appropriate. 
not appropriate. Your character can hold on to their libido until after the casket is lowered to the ground, please. <laughs> A family reunion might be illegal <laughs> versus just being ill-timed. Well, family, yeah. <laughs> But, but it does remind me of that scene in that movie that had Harrison Ford and Anne Hesh in it. And Harrison Ford and Anne Hesh got, were in a plane and they crashed. And his girlfriend and her fiancé, um, they thought that they were dead. So at, they had a memorial service on the beach for them. Like, you know, just, you know, funeral thing. And then they went back to the hotel room and had sex. <laughs> That's an ill-timed motor. I'm not sure that was a crush. Because they were grieving. Yeah. <laughs> but and then of course they come back. There is this yeah. thing. It is a thing that people do when they write a ship of any kind, right? It's like the first time the characters meet. It's like if this is going to be your pairing, like let's say it's John Rodney or whoever you like, Tony Steve, any Tony Steve. It's like the moment they meet. It's like you have to. For some reason, writers feel like they need to have the characters acknowledge. That the other person is attractive, regardless of how inappropriate their that might be at their first meeting. Somebody's about to drop a nuclear weapon on New York City in um, in an MCU story, and somebody is pausing to take note of, "Oh, he's actually very attractive." Stop it! <laughs> wow, you're so hot right now. <laughs> I'm not. Act- I mean, maybe maybe this this is this could be a guy girl thing, but I mean, I am objectively. I, I notice people's attractiveness, right? I do. I'm, a, I'm, I'm capable of acknowledging that somebody's attractive. But there are times when people's looks don't even register with me. I could not tell you. If somebody said, you know, that person that, you know, you were pulling out of the floodwaters, were they attractive? I'm like, I don't know. Somebody get me a video so I can rewatch it and I'll let you know. Because it's just not, it's not in my, in my, it's not. It's not important, somebody's attractiveness, when you're all about to die, you know? And yet you read stories where there's, they're in mortal peril. And um, there's this, you know, he was attractive, but now is not the time to focus on it. Well, then quit focusing on it. <laughs> quit focusing on it. And the funeral thing has got to go. It has got to go. And I'm not talking to Phantom. I see this more in romance, actually. Original r- romances is... The getting a boner or getting turned on at a funeral. It's like, come on. It, it's, just, it's just so gross. Come on it now. It's gross. There's a, like, that's a dead body present. This is not the time for a boner. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Saw that coming from a mile away. That's a great one. I reject your canon and substitute my own. And it is a great, how you say it? Homage to mm-hmm. Adam. Slow burn adoption. <laughs> I don't even know. If Wait, that is, is that kind of like what small magic is? Because by the end of like Thorin didn't even like Harry and thought he was a problem, you know, and was willing to put up with him. And then he was kind of pissy. And then by the end of small magic, he want, you know, he wants to adopt Harry himself. <laughs> so I think that's a slow burn adoption because it's over a hundred K before Thorin admits that he might actually like Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I like that Willow. 
I like to Marie Kondo my can and I only keep what sparks joy <laughs> and doesn't kill the Dorans. There is an AO tag of the that's interesting tag of the day. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I wouldn't keep much of fandom if I Marie Kondo did it. Right? It'd be a sad, sad <laughs> state out there. Although I think that just so that the room didn't feel so empty, I probably want to keep them more than deserve to be kept. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I hate I don't hate this. <laughs> I guess it could stay. <laughs> Sometimes one time I was reading something, I get to the end of it. That's just somebody asked me what I thought of it thought about it. I said it it was good. And then I kind of wanted to retract the it was good and go, it was it was the best thing I've read in like six days, which um, considering that this objectively probably wasn't that good. <laughs> but but <laughs> I didn't, I didn't nope out, you know, I didn't nope out. I got through it. So it, it was good. It didn't destroy me. Here's the, you know, this is a sad thing is there's got to be billions of fanfic, right? Certainly millions, but I wouldn't be surprised if we were up in the billions at this point. And you'd think there, and I know it's true that there's really good fan fiction out there that I have not read. It is just in a fandom that I'm interested in, qualifying in a fandom that I'm interested in. And sometimes it's just really hard to find that stuff. Really hard. To me, it's like people there's with a lack of consistency and tagging so you we wind up relying on rex and then people rex things to me it's like did you hit- i mean i think that the back the open doors project is really beneficial for ao3 but i think one of the biggest disservices that's been done to the sentinel fandom was the open doors project because all that thick is there but you can't but you find can't it. find it can't find it because honestly if you search by any reasonable mechanism for sentinel fix it's going to get your top three or four hundred are going to get crowded out by uh, probably in some cases stories that don't have anything to do with the sentinel they might just be sentinel fusions because some of the most popular um sentinel stories on ao3 are sentinel fusions they don't actually have anything to do with the sentinel um but I mean, I don't know if there's any, there's not a really good way to handle some of these things. And I don't know if there's a way, the only way to address some of these problems is if AO3 required in some kind of consistent tagging. Um, but I don't think there ever, there's just no way to police tagging at this point. I mean, that is one of those cases is you, you just can't, that's shutting the barn door after all the horses are gone. It is so wild west over there. It's just like, but I do think that as part of the open doors project, there should be like a volunteer team for each archive coming into it who will go through these fix and try to do some at least minimal tagging you know pairing fandom (laughs) yeah well the pairing sometimes the pairings aren't there the fandom is usually there but the author isn't there unless the author um so even if the author is on ao3 if they haven't claimed that story and the claiming process is weird because mm-hmm. you you have to log in and create an account with the email address that the archive ported you in with. So like when they bring in stuff from like an X-Files archive, they say, this is the email address for Jilly James, right? Well, if that's an email address I don't have anymore, 
That's not in any way attached to my account on AO3. So it's not until I create an account with that email address that I even knew that AO, that I had X-File stories brought into a AO3. I didn't know. And the stuff that come in through open doors, most people don't hit them in their search results in any way because um, they're not going to have kudos at all, right? It could have been the most popular story in that fandom on that archive, and it's going to have nothing, right? They're not going to have hits. They're usually backdated to their publication date on the original archive. So they're not going to show up as Which means, no. So... They're what? not going to have a pairing. They're not going to have any kind of tags that would be attractive to a reader that they might search for specifically. Um, so while I think Open Doors is awesome, in theory, in practice, it's, it's not almost, always great. Well, it's, it's almost not like always great. The fix almost wind up lost anyway. I think one of the things that might be useful to do is go through the list of Open Doors projects and bookmark for yourself the fandoms that you enjoyed so that at least when you're looking for something from an old Harry Potter archive fandom they haven't read in a while that you might go actually look through the collection that is created for that open doors project because you mm -hmm. might find stories by directly searching that old archive rather than um because those those things are never going to rise to the top of your search list on AO3 and in, in a big fandom where you're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of results the thing is, often I find by the time I'm eight or ten pages into a search result list, the quality is so diminished that I'm not reading anymore. And I know, I know somewhere way back at the end, there's some really good stories. But I just, I don't have any way of getting to them. When I come into a new fandom or a new pairing, I usually sort by date posted and then I go to the very last page. So I get the first stories that appeared on AO3 in the fandom. Um, so I can kind of, and then I move forward. So it, so I can see how fixed trend and pairings develop because there's a, there's a definite trend there when it comes to dates posted. Um, and so that's just the way I do it. And then once I get comfortable, I'll start looking for specific tags and specific pairings. I'll start excluding things that I don't like that I've seen develop in the fandom. But that's just the way I do it. That's that's an interesting approach. It also would allow you to hit all the open door stuff mm -hmm. that is, you know, deep back there and very difficult to get a hold of. But um, just be careful when you read, especially if you're already in a really kind of low place where it's it's difficult to feel creative um you want to read people and read read stories that inspire you um and that you're comfortable with and that are exploring themes that you want to explore as a writer i think is really important as well because if you're already struggling don't add to your struggle don't pile on top with things that make you unhappy and things that make you less creative and things that make you uncomfortable or sad or angry, which is why honestly, and this is going to sound really stupidly arrogant and I don't care when I cannot write, when I am unmotivated, I read my own shit because there are going to be no surprises in my own shit. I, I will sit too. and read my own work for days 
Yeah. Now, I've been noping out of stories over single words lately. That means my tolerance level is at an all-time low. I hit one word. I'm like, no. And I'll, I, it, it sounds ridiculous, but I'll hit one word that I cannot deal with, and I'm gone. Um, story where Styles is 18, and he's in a relationship with somebody who's 23, 24, or 30, whatever, and he's being referred to as the boy. Nope. nope. Back and away. I mean, it does, I don't care how far it is into the story. I'm done. I'm done. And that's just my level of sensitivity right now. Um, but you need to protect yourself and you don't want to if you're already fucked <laughs> I don't need to get more fucked up uh, and I know these are things sometimes people don't think about how they how the way a character referred to can be um, can be really really bad we've, we've talked about epithets before about like what it says about um your character like if they're referring to their teammates as the nerds right like it actually said quite a bit about um we actually talked about this in regard to the boffin thing and the james bond fandom but it said a lot about um seely booth actually that he constantly referred to the people he worked with as the squints that was not actually nice so it said a lot about him and probably something very deliberate at first but, but the, the thing is, that's the kind of thing you would want to see a character evolve out of as he came to value his scientifically-minded co-workers. Fan fiction never evolves him out of that, right? For the most part. it's He's always referring to them as a squints. But I think also there came a point in the canon of the show where it stopped being derogatory and turned into com a, a term of, of affection for him. Yeah. Because it was like, don't mess with my squints. <laughs> These are my nerd babies. You need to leave them alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and he did cross over into that moment where they were like, they stopped being a burden and started being his team. And you need to leave his team alone. You need to be careful. I'm going to fuck you up. So, but it took, I think, time. Which is realistic because change takes time. Yeah. Yeah. So, but at first, it didn't say anything good about his character that he called them that, right? It yeah. actually, it told you about him as a character, but it wasn't actually a good aspect of his personality. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Perfect characters are boring. Um, he saw them as a, a necessary evil. Yeah. That he needed them to do this work so that he could do his job. And he found that frustrating. He found them frustrating. He didn't want to understand their jobs but over time he came to value them and not just the woman that he ended up married to but all of them yeah i mean i think he had a good arc i see less of that arc in the whole the boffin thing we've talked about in the james Bond. i find that word deeply offensive yeah well he just in in the most fan fiction he just so blithely refers to everybody who works um does he actually use that word in the movie? I don't think so. But maybe. It's just not that I recall. Oh. Failure to secure your geek. <laughs> Failure to properly secure your geek. But, you know, the thing about Jack O'Neill, um, is that what I would say, is that when he first started out, he did not value the contributions that, that Daniel had to give. Even in the movie, he didn't value Daniel's contributions. And by the end of the movie, he had um, gotten to the point where 
remember that moment in the movie where they're both standing there in front of the bomb and the rings activate and they look at each other and say at the same time, I've got an idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really interesting moment for both of them because they've they've come together as partners, really, in this moment. And their different roles are no longer important. And it's never more evident than when you learn that Jack O'Neill, when he returned to Earth, covered for Daniel Jackson. That he lied to his superiors about Daniel Jackson so that no one would, go, would try to go back to Abydos to get him. And it wasn't until Hammond was faking the idea of firing a nuclear weapon through to Abydos that, that Jack fessed up. And you know that Hammond was faking because of the episode 1969. Was it 7969? Because imagine George Hammond standing there thinking, you lie a little. <laughs> We're just going to play it out. It's going to play it out. Got to let, let it run its course. I know you're lying. <laughs> I can't prove it yet, but I know you're lying. I wonder when they're going to bring home the big guy with the head jewelry. <laughs> It's something I think that people pick up a vernacular or a lexicon in a fandom and they don't stop to think about what it says about your POV character, that they would use mm -hmm. that language about another character. Um, and in terms of problematic language um, in Teen Wolf, I actually find Styles being constantly referred to as the boy or the teen, unless he's literally 16, in which case he shouldn't be banging anybody. Um, just my opinion. You do you. But well, me in California, state of California, but anyway. Um, but if he's supposed to be an adult, an adult relationship, that Derek would be thinking of him as the boy. Unless there's a daddy-boy vibe going on with them, and they've got a BDSM-type relationship, the whole the boy thing, it feels weird. I'm like, why is he referring to him as the boy? Does he see him that way? And there's nothing in the dynamic that would express that he sees him that way. So that language is just so bizarre to me. Um, what it boils down to is the author is trying to there's this piece of advice about monotony and using the same words over and over and over again and grammarly will tell you about yourself when you do it and so will word it's it's shitty advice that came from fandom honestly which is that you shouldn't that names that using send the name over somebody's name over and over again is repetitive and that you shouldn't do it now there is a point where it is repetitive because you don't want to say, you know, Scott walked to the mailbox and Scott got the mail and then Scott came back into the house. <laughs> but that's, you don't want to do that. That's, that's more of your writing style that's an issue. Because it's, it's, that's, that's just as bad to say Scott walked to the mailbox and the crooked jaw teen picked up the mail. And then, you know, the young alpha walked back to the house and pouted. It's ridiculous. Who's the crooked jawed teen? I've heard you say that several times. Scott. Really? Yes. Does he have a crooked jaw? His face is a little asymmetrical. His jaw is, it, it, he, he does have an asymmetrical. I just don't get, I don't get that. But I see the crooked jawed teen all the fucking time. I'm like, yes. I think it's, that's ugly. That That's like shaming. The only time I ever saw it useful 
useful was when it was a case of Styles didn't, it, I don't know if it was Styles, somebody, somebody didn't know Scott, right? And they thought of him, oh, the team with the asymmetrical jaw. I got it. I knew exactly who they were talking about was Scott, right? Because oh, he's he's the only character, yeah. you know? Um, now, I don't think an asymmetry in someone's features makes them unattractive. I actually think I don't have a problem with his asymmetrical jaw, but it is just a, it is just such an odd, it's hard to see in a. Is there a picture with a straight on? You need a face on, full on. Huh. I have never noticed that until now. Now it's all I will ever notice. Yeah. The, the, there's a, there's definitely asymmetry there, right? But to just. To use the epithet you use for him as not the alpha or the werewolf, but to call him the crooked-jawed teen. Why? Yes, it only works to me from a POV of somebody who doesn't know Scott. And That's a much better picture of him as far as like, because that one up above made it look really bizarre. Yeah, that one in the blue background, it's it's almost like something happened to one side of his face. Whereas the other one, it just looks like he's got a little bit of an asymmetrical chin. Which yeah, not, I don't think it makes him unattractive at all. It even no. might, it might even make his face more interesting. I like people who have interesting faces. So, um, like I like uh -huh. strong features, particularly particularly in women. I like women with strong features, you know. But um, I like square jaw, strong features. I, it works for me. But in any case, it's just a odd thing for someone like Styles to constantly in his POV thinking of his his friend or even God help us all in Scott's point of view he's the crooked jog team. Come on. <laughs> Shut up. I, I read a story that had some POV it was POVs were Styles and, and Isaac and somebody else, I can't remember the other one, but Isaac referred to himself. In his POV, his epithet was the curly-haired beta. I was like, stop it. Stop it. He can't think of himself that way. That's just foolishness. <laughs> I think some people think they're writing in one point of view when they're really riding in another. I wonder how many people, if you asked a person who wrote that, where Isaac referred to himself as the curly haired beta, if, she, if that person would say, I almost said she, because most, because I assume that most, like what, 80, 90% of fandom is female. Yeah. As far as writers go. Um, if you ask that person, that writer, what POV they're writing in, would they say third-person omniscient? <laughs> they, well, I don't think they would know, but... Um, <laughs> that was bitter. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did share that story with you recently, where I told you I thought that the author was trying to write omniscient, but it was just head-hopping. But I could see what they were going... I could see they were trying, right? I think in, that, in this particular case, there was no... Head hopping. It was all Isaac's POV. POV was actually really solid. He just referred to himself as curly haired beta. I just, I never have referred to my, my my POV character with an epithet. I would not refer to Tony as the agent unless it was not his point of view, because that is weird. I think it's, I think I mean, people don't think about it, right? Um, even even I think I don't even think. It, 
even I hesitate a little bit with military, but I think I could do John referring to himself maybe as Shepard. I don't see him referring to himself as the major. Rodney could do it, but John thinking of himself as the major, it would make you no. feel like you got a head hop. So you're in a scene and John and Rodney are talking. And you're John's point of view. And it says the major picked up the piece of paper and handed it off to Rodney. It would be like, I would feel like I just got in a head hop. And it isn't. People use epithets for their POV character. And it is just like, whoa, whoa. But the part, the reason this happens is it's, it's epithet abuse. It's just out of control. And some phantoms are way worse than others for this. Um, it's like we can't use a character's name for whatever reason. And there are times when epithets are entirely appropriate. Where like you want to remind somebody of somebody's job. Or their occupation. Or, um, or where your character doesn't need a name you know if you've got a fireman in your scene you don't necessarily need to name him unless his name is Derek you don't need to know that his name is Mike right it's just the fireman you know but if his name is Derek we definitely we need, need to, know. to know we need to know about fire <laughs> de- fireman Derek yeah <laughs> there are rules so I see people who- can I just say can I just say that during our tag bingo it would be great if we got a story with some hot ass lady wearing a thigh holster. <laughs> I'm all in on that. I could put, I could, I'd be happy to put Cara Dune in a thigh holster because, yes, she's hot. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> That's right, as That's right. I'm just saying, it can't all be about the dick frame. Although, when it comes to thigh holsters, I'm fine with what? one, I don't need two. Right. But if you're going to write numbers, let's go with two. Because <laughs> there's something about that that I can't understand. You can find source material for, for them out, being out there in their double thigh holsters. Right? Um, <laughs> only time we ever, I think the only time we ever saw Megan in a thigh, no, we saw her in a thigh holster several times. But there was that time where she was undercover and her, um, her gun was in a garter, you know, up under her skirt. Oh, that's a different kind of thigh holster. That's not what we're talking yeah. about. We're talking tactical gear here. But we're also not opposed to the other kind in other situations. I'm not definitely not opposed. No. I'm never opposed to the hidden weapon. Which sounded dirtier than I meant it. But whatever. <laughs> I think people... Considering the content of the average podcast, that is saying something. Right. Um... I think that people pick up habits. Actually, some people, I think, kind of learn. They may not be able to tell you that they're writing in third person limited, but they've read enough good stories, right, that they are able to stay in a POV. And you could tell that they're like rock solid or pretty, you know, maybe like one head hop or something, but they're pretty rock solid about their point of view, even if they didn't like take class to learn how to about point of view mechanics. But then they picked up this stupid epithet habit from, um, from from fan fiction and then you've got Styles POV and he's referring to himself as the gangly teen and I'm like <laughs> holy shit <laughs> well see, uh, see I told you sometimes one is all you need that's like an extra though that's like extra that's like that's like apocalypse style holster they want to make sure that doesn't go anywhere so Although I'm digging the thing it's framing seems a little deflated. <laughs> right, there's something wrong with his pants. 
it's unfortunate. Yeah, there's something wrong with his pants, definitely. Sad state of affairs, actually. Anyways, we're, we're going we're gonna to come, come, come close to four hours here if we don't stop. So, um, we're going to end this podcast here. I hope that um, it was entertaining and um, um, thought-provoking and that you are minding your, your space and you're keeping true to yourself as a writer. Um, and that you're staying safe and wearing a mask and gearing up for war when you leave your house and staying home otherwise because it's safer. Be safe. And um, for those of you who are in the chat room, if you stick around, I'll, I'll talk about my my idea. And for those of you who are listening to this from a historical perspective, I'm really sorry, sort of. Sucks to be you. <laughs> Have a good... <laughs> Say good night, Jillian. Good night. <laughs>